0: This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13, wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free.
1: Here at Astonishing Legends, our show is rooted in many types of stories. But one of the anchors of our ever-expanding archive of shows would have to be hauntings. In the paranormal world, the term haunting has come to encompass many things, from poltergeists to skinwalkers to possessions. Perhaps people use it a little too quickly, and as a result, they oversimplify a complex variety of events. This, in turn, might be making it harder for us mortals to figure out what's going on in these cases. Are we trying too hard to put disparate things in the same box together so we can comprehend them better? And when we do that, are we turning our backs on the entropy of the universe? It's hard to say because right now, we don't know. But whatever the proper term for a chain of events like these, Tonight, we dive into one of the most famous hauntings of recent memory, a legend that is just weeks away from the 50th anniversary of when it all began. It's inspired an entire franchise of eight movies, The Conjuring series, one of which was released just five days before we recorded this show. When a legend moves through time, getting told and retold again, often with embellishments and changes, the story at the root of it sometimes gets lost. But, as we like to say, invariably, something happened that made this story into a legend. In this case, it was a haunting that while possibly active for almost a century prior, became particularly agitated when the Perrone family, seeking a simpler life and a change of scenery, moved into an idyllic rural farmhouse in Harrisville, Rhode Island in 1971 you probably think you know this story. But if the movie is all you know, you've barely scratched the surface.
2: Welcome back to Astonishing Legends. I'm Scott Philbrook, and this is Forrest Burgess. Arms
1: but no hands. Dress went to the floor but no feet. Intimidating, wants to kiss me, wants to kill me, wants me dead. Carolyn Perrone, page 189 of House of Darkness,
2: House of Light, The True Story, Volume 1. Join us tonight for part one of our series on the Perrone family haunting. And we're back. That we are, folks. Thanks for sticking with us after our recent two-week break. Those come up naturally during the year on a bi-weekly schedule, but only three times, so don't worry. We're still year-round, and another show from us is nearly always just around the corner. Oh, and also, we wanted to let listeners of the Midnight Library know Miranda Merrick and Mr. Darling over there just did a crossover episode, literally crossing over the pond, with the hit mm-hmm. podcast out of the UK, <laughs> Lormen. <laughs> yes, the Lormen
1: are comedians James Shakeshaft and Alice dare Beckett King, and whenever they
2: have the Midnight Library crew on, things get a little squirrely. I thought that episode was hilarious, and Lorman is a great show, too. If you haven't heard it before, find it wherever you get your podcasts and look for Season 3, Episode 69, titled The Midnight Library 2, The Ghost of Harry Maine," mm. which has already been released.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Well, in other exciting crossover news, we also just did a roundtable episode with our good friends Adam and Matt over at Graveyard Tales, where we talked about Disclosure, Multiverses, and James Dean's Haunted Transaxle. Haunted cursed. I can't can't ever get that straight. (laughs) Well, you're just going to have to listen to find out. The episode goes live on the Graveyard Tales feed on June 18th of
2: 2021. And on top of that, we shot video of it and both our Patreon as well as theirs. will be posting that on June 20th of 2021. So patrons, keep your eyes open for that. Just like Lorman, you can find Graveyard Tales anywhere you get your podcasts, as well as in dark alleys behind curiosity stores in Nashville, Tennessee. Ooh, well, speaking of which, should we mention Nashville? No, not yet. It's not official yet. Why not? Well, still looking for a landing site. I will say this, however, if you're not too far from Nashville, Tennessee, and you're available August 7th of 2021, put a little X on your calendar for that evening. Ooh, cryptic. Well, anyway, (laughs) tonight's a fascinating show, but before we get into it, a word
1: of warning. Now, we know, uh, because we hear from our listeners frequently, that we have lots of younger ears listening, and we'd like to take a moment to warn you about tonight's show. While it's not explicit in nature, per se, it will depict particularly graphic violence in a way that may not be suitable for younger children. So, listener discretion is advised.
2: Let's get into The Conjuring. Okay, before we go anywhere, we got to do that thing that I actually love doing every time, and we need to talk about our sources a little bit on this one.
1: Yeah, usually what I do is I repeat it every time I <laughs> mention something from a source because I'm a, I'm so afraid somebody's going to hear that, like, hey, I wrote that, you yeah. idiot, like, give me credit. You <laughs> know, we, we usually do as we go along, we try to be very cognizant and respectful to the sources we choose from because we weren't there. That's how we get this information. And some podcasts don't even tell you where they got the info. But here, this one is going to be very obvious because as we sit at the top in the cold open, a lot of people know this story because of a wildly successful scary movie. But that's not the total story. And I know a lot of people know that, of course, that the film is often different from the book or the real life experience. But we're going to take a look at how different and what is different and why, as sworn to by one of the people who experienced it, the real life experience is so much scarier
2: than the film you saw. Yeah, there's a lot of great stuff that never made it from the true story into the movie. And we've encountered this before. It's a lot like Skinwalker Ranch. These stories don't always follow a three-act structure. They don't follow a narrative storytelling kind of structure. It's just (laughs) a series of events that you try to make a story out of, and it's very difficult to do. And the movies have it easy, if you ask me, because they get to fictionalize stuff. When we're trying to retell it, we don't get to fictionalize it, and we're still trying to make it into a story. So (laughs) that's the challenge that we have. But we are so grateful for this book, which is actually called House of Darkness, House of Light, The True Story, Volume 1, By Andrea Perrone, who was there. She was the eldest daughter in this family and was there for everything and is still out there today talking about it. Yeah, and speaking of which,
1: we are going to get some notes from her directly when she spoke to Jim Harold. But first, I wanted to say, I think she was the perfect person to be the chronicler of the family's history because, as she said, it, it was a collection of experiences and perceptions and recollections that she was able to merge all this together. And I think being the eldest child in a large family with two adults is in a great position to perhaps navigate that middle line of objectivity, but with subjectivity in that, like all of the paranormal, it's a very subjective experience. And you need to blend that with objectivity as best you can, but really, it's a personal experience that you you got to go through. So yes, I tip my hat to you and bow down to you because it's quite a tome. Volume one is 500 pages alone, and you you knocked that out in two days. Yeah, two and a half to be fair. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you kept texting us uh, Tess and I like I know it's
2: long but uh, this is chilling yeah it really <laughs> is and it, and it was very compelling as well and uh, if we didn't say it already you can of course find her book on amazon.com but you can find it at a at an actually at a little bit of a discount from amazon at authorhouse.com which is her publisher that's a u t h o r H-O-U-S-E dot com probably puts a little more money in her pocket as well if you buy it there. So but you can get it on Amazon. We'll have links to all the places you can get it in the show notes here. Authorhouse.com or Amazon.com. Andrea Perrone P-E-R-R-O-N, House of Darkness, House of Light. And there are three volumes. now. So far, as Forrest said, <laughs> I've read the first yeah. one uh, cover to cover, and I think I'm going to have to read the other two as well. And I have them on my Kindle, and it's so heavy, I can't pick it up off the desk anymore. But uh, (laughs)
1: it's a life story, the life story of, uh, what, five daughters, two adults, seven people. Yeah, seven people and a dozen spirits.
3: (laughs) At (laughs) At the minimum,
1: yeah. (laughs) Some animals in there, and uh, it's really, she does a great job, though, of getting everyone's perspective and, and utilizing it, because that's important. As those of us who like the paranormal in these kind of stories, it is like Seven Samurai. Depending on who you ask, you get a different perspective. But altogether, you get the big picture. So it was quite a monumental feat to write, as she said in her interview with Jim Harold. The first book came out in uh, 2011. Yes. And I think volume three was published in 2014. So that would be a year after her interview with Jim. Okay, so moving on to source number two. This is the one that everybody is, I'm sure, familiar with. It's the movie The Conjuring. The motion picture from 2013. From director James Wan, who's become a a cult hero to a lot of horror movie fans. You'll all know him from the Saw and Insidious movies fame. That's his line there. The Curse of La Llorona. And of course, the Conjuring movies Universe Annabelle, the Nun, and the upcoming The Nun 2. And The Crooked Man. Did he do all of those? I mean, I know it's like eight movies. When you look at it, it's, uh, he's he's directed some of them. He's produced some of them. Some yeah. of them he's directed and produced. So he's right. very much involved with this. Uh, movies are a extremely collaborative experience and project, Pierre. But you could say that he's definitely part of the inner soul of this franchise. And each of these characters are connected. And this is, you know, some people might say like, oh, come on, you're just cranking these out to make money. But here's what I like about it. They're interwoven. So the nun character is interwoven into the Conjuring movie. All of these spin-offs here, the Crooked Man, they appear in different timelines throughout as the movies were released chronologically. That's not how the story, the narrative takes place. So if you look online, we'll we'll certainly have a link to it. You can watch them as they were released. And you'll, of course, experience them as the movies were created. And that informs the story. Or you can go back and watch them in chronological narrative order, which is what I'm doing. And it's a lot of fun because you could see the birth of these ideas take place as a narrative and
2: evolve all the way through. Oh, that's kind of like some people... You know, want to do with Star Wars, right? Well, you're going to have to put down <laughs> okay. now. Since you're got, putting doing, it in the I'm right order, yes, yeah, right, right. You need to put that in the show notes so everybody can figure out which way to go with it. We will do that. Yeah, there's a few articles I found. It's
1: uh, it is one of those fun things where you have a choice. In this case, though, all of these characters evolve into a their own timeline. So uh, this was a, a quite an effort. Also here with the Conjuring in 2013 uh, from writers Chad Hayes and Carrie W. Hayes. People will know Patrick Wilson as uh, everybody's uh, favorite paranormal duo, the Warrens. He stars as Ed Warren. Vera Farmiga as Lorraine Warren. Ron Livingston from The Office fame, which I, I certainly love. He's Roger Perone, and Lily Taylor's terrific. She's Carolyn Perone, and Shanley Caswell is Andrea Perone our author, whose book we're pulling from here. So, of course, that's going to be the most popular source that everyone knows. And why we're including it is that Angela Perrone really liked this film. She understands that it's its own thing. You can't have a film that mirrors exactly the, the events in real time, much like The Mothman Prophecies is not going to be an exact documentary of everything that happened, you take some license. It's its own creative thing. So she realizes that and she thought it came out really well. She had nothing but terrific things to say about it. And you'll hear about her thoughts that don't appear anywhere else and some inside information in the interview
2: with Jim Harold for his Paranormal Podcast, number 309. Yes, definitely check that out. It's worth listening to. Uh, We're trying to get a hold of her too, but we haven't heard back yet, so we're not sure that she's going to be on this series. But either way, he did a a really great interview with her, which I really enjoyed listening to after reading volume one of her story. Also, just quickly want to say that I'm a huge fan of Lily Taylor, but it's difficult even in a horror film not to, when she comes on screen, to hear her singing her famous song from Say Anything... Which was Joe lies, <laughs> but if you haven't seen Say anything. Go check yeah. that out.
1: But uh. no, she's had quite a terrific career, and she's just so watchable. And what she does really well is portray Carolyn, the mother, and that strong motherly figure that is the glue and the strength behind the family, keeping them all together. But her experience was a lot different than the daughters. So again. She'll tell you, though, in this interview, what was different. Now, I want to make a note here because you won't find these on the Paranormal Podcast free feed because it came out in 2013. So you're going to have to join his Paranormal Plus Club to get those archive shows. But I tell you, it's worth it. Before we started this podcast, I was a member because you get hundreds of podcasts. It's unbelievable. He's been podcasting since 2005. It's really a wealth of entertainment information education and well worth the money spent and our brothers adam and matt from graveyard tales and their episode on the warrens titled ed and lorraine warren which aired on april 2nd 2021 this year that is also a lot of inspiration and information that i got about the warrens who again if you've seen the movie they're very prominent of course those are the uh, some of the two big stars in the movie. And they're the ones who investigated the case
2: at the time for at least a short period. There's a lot of things that are interesting about this book. One of the things that I noticed right out of the gate, these opening chapters, it's either it's a prologue or it's an introduction or whatever, and they all have the same tone. Every time a book is written by somebody who's had a personal experience. And it's weird. It has a, a feeling for me now because I've had a personal experience. And whenever I try to tell that story, I'm like, no, you have to believe me. This is real. It really happened. And that's how <laughs> it all feels. It's and, yeah. and some of the things that she mentions in this is she says, quote, this is delving into, and I'm talking about Andrea Perrone in her book. This is mm-hmm. location 173 of the Kindle edition of uh, volume one of, their, of her book. Delving into the painful memories has proved difficult, rekindling imagery, disturbing emotions, long repressed, which is a very genuine and sincere feeling. But there's also that whole thing about like, oh, it doesn't matter to me if you believe this. And it doesn't matter where you are on it. I want to tell this story. We're going to get it out there. She's saying the same thing. It's what Terry Lovelace will say. It's what anybody will say that has a story like this to tell. And in a way, when I hear that statement, that's me feeling like, okay, this person really went through something. The person that doesn't say this is the person that maybe is making it up. And that's what I think is (laughs) something that's occurred to me after all these years of doing this. And here's the other thing she said about a personal experience in her book. Acquiring knowledge through direct experience is a blessing and a curse. It defines, then redefines. Once something so extraordinary has been witnessed, there is no escaping the imagery impaled in a memory it cannot be explained and it cannot be denied there is no legitimate reason to dismiss otherwise consistently reliable senses again house yeah. of darkness house of light the true story volume 1 i won't say it every single time but we do like to do our <laughs>
1: attributions <laughs> i'll and jump that, in when uh, when you when you fail to do it but, yes, uh, no, but that's wonder
2: house publishing so uh
1: and there's one great quote that Andrea... Attributes to her mom, Carolyn, from the Jim's interview here about people who don't believe her, don't believe the story, don't you know, think the family is just a bunch of fakers and, and making stuff up. Uh, her mom always says, what you think of me is none of my business. <laughs> so you go on about your thoughts and whatever you think about the story and us uh, as, as people and our verisimilitude, but I don't care to hear it it just doesn't affect me because that's what most people will say who've experienced something. Her name is uh, escaping me right now, but the very lovely woman at Pontefract who had the experience, she goes, you know, uh, in her Yorkshire accent, I don't care if you don't believe me. Carol Fieldhouse. Yes. That's right. Yes. Yes. It's been a while, but no, uh, it has been a while. I couldn't have done yeah, that. No, she was, <laughs> uh, she's terrific <laughs> and lovely. And, and there's some similarities between all these experiencers and that, After a while, it's never great. uh, People that say like, "Well, you just did this, or you're just saying this to make a buck. You're all millionaires off of all this." Like that's nothing could be further than the truth. And then I like to point out that all the people that spend their time debunking all this stuff, and that's different. That's a cynical approach, not a skeptical approach. As we often say, I just want to make clear that is that uh, we believe in questioning everything, which is a form of skepticism. Question everything, especially if you believe in it. The cynical part of that is that all this is baloney. Don't question it. You don't need to. I know the answers already. And we don't like that tack because we think it's limiting at the very least. So, in light of those people who make a living out of debunking stuff, you can logically and honestly say they're making money off of the reverse position and argument of these
2: things that's how they make their living. Yeah, they're making more money than these people (laughs) are making. You know, if you put a table up in your yard and you charge people tickets to come look at Kelly Hopkinsville or, you know, Andrea Perrone, you know, I hope she's doing very well, but I'm telling you something, when you self-publish a book, you'd be very surprised at how much you're not making in that process. (laughs) There's not a lot left over by the time it's printed and shipped. Yeah. And I don't short shrift anybody that makes their living
1: writing critical viewpoints because we need that. We need the Michael Shermers we need the Brian Dunnings. I just want people to be fair and open and and honest with themselves and the rest of us and what they find and, and consider everything. But it's also a living. And there's certainly debunkers of this case saying that, uh, you know, the Warrens are full of it. Uh, this family are just a bunch of great actors. None of this really happened. And, you know, they're doing it for attention. And, well, yeah, you're part of that too if you write about this and come out with public statements and, uh,
2: and articles. So that's just my point let's come back to Andrea. Let's come back to her book. And and one of the things that I really enjoyed about it was how much extra detail there was in there, which of mm. course you would expect to be in 500 pages over a movie that's only 90 minutes, which is probably about a script's maybe 120 pages. So there's a lot of extra info here. And the movie does a good job of showing the family and the family dynamic and and that stuff's there. But there's a lot of things in the book that got lost. You know, one of the things that I noticed in, in reading volume one of the series was how how important Carolyn was, how important mm-hmm. the mom was in the equation, and Andrea seemed to be writing about her father as though he re- he really didn't believe in much of any of it, and he was also on the road a lot for work. And it was a very loving relationship. There was no disrespect. There was no casting aspersions against her dad. He just was, it seemed like he was in denial. He's like, I don't know. This is not what's happening here. But what's really fascinating about this story that isn't in the movie is that they went through a pretty serious ordeal before they even got to this house. Their story, of course, doesn't start when they moved there. Like all families, they lived a whole yeah. long time in other places <laughs> before they got to this house, and they, and so that definition it precedes that movie. Here's where we're going to dial back to. We're going to go back to because when you think about when this movie took place, it takes place about in 1970 when they when they get into the home in Harrisville, 70-71. In 1964, they actually bought a house in a town in Rhode Island called Cumberland. That's about a half hour away from where the Harrisville Conjuring House winds up being. Just a little bit of quick background on the family. We have the dad, Roger, and the mom, Carolyn, and they have five girls. They have Andrea, who is the oldest. She's the author who wrote the uh, the books and the memoirs, and she compiled everyone else's stories and put them into uh, volume three, I believe. She has most of that stuff in. She was about nine or 10 years old when all this started. Then there's Nancy, and I'm not sure these middle girls' ages, but there was Nancy. Mm-hmm. There's Christine or Chrissy. Cynthia, or Cindy, and then the youngest, the baby, at the time of this story was April. So, again, that's Roger and Carolyn, Andrea, Nancy, Christine, Cynthia, and April. That's a lot of girls. That's like, it reminds me of my aunt who kept (laughs) trying to have a girl and wound up with three boys, so it's... (laughs) <laughs> wow <laughs> Well, so they moved into this house in Cumberland It was a nice neighborhood when they got their modest house About six years after they got into it in 1970 Things were starting to change uh, Both culturally and in the neighborhood In 1969, roughly, they got a puppy. Uh, This dog was an African Basenji. And I actually had a relative with one of these. It was a very Mm. cute, very smart little dog, curly little tail, uh, bred as hunters in Africa to help control Mm. rodent populations in villages. And here's one of the craziest things about Basenjis. They can't bark. They don't, they're <laughs> incapable of barking. There's some little noises they make. Uh, one is described yeah. as yodeling. I never heard. My cousins never made a single sound the yeah. whole time I knew it. That would be helpful for our recording sessions. Yes, it would. Yeah. Uh, uh, versus would. the dogs I have, the, one of whom barks at the drop of a hat.
1: <laughs> right. But you're working Literally. on that. Yeah. 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 Size relation wise,
2: how large are they to a breed that's more commonly known? the they're, uh, gosh, I, how do I describe this? They're... Probably two or three times as big as a Chihuahua, but non monster dogs, not, not huge. Yeah, small to mid size. Yeah, right. mid right. I would say,
1: on the smaller side of mid size. Not as large as the dog you see in the film, The Conjuring. And yes, folks, no. uh, I, I'm going to refer to this again because that's what we all know. And it, a lot of us, I think, are content to just leave it at that. But we like to compare them because uh, it's also interesting to see how one medium uh the book people always say well it wasn't as good as the book and they're two different things yes the feeling is captured
2: correctly according to Andrea so we're going to see why Andrea specifically in this case who was again as we said i think 9 or 10 years old when they got this puppy was very very attached to this little dog mm. And one day she decided she wanted to take it for a walk and her sisters, they all wanted to go in on this is from uh, Andrea's book, they all wanted to go with her so they decided they would all go and Carolyn was fine with that so they they put the dog on a leash and they went out walking and there are a few blocks from their house, again this is their house in Cumberland, Rhode Island, this is not the house that The Conjuring took place at. And as they're walking down the street, this group of teenagers apparently comes tearing by really fast and something about it made uh, the Basinji bolt after the car and ran out across the road and actually made it all the way to the other side, safely to the sidewalk. But uh, poor little Andrea panicked. She was freaking out because she had gotten away and she was worried about her being in the street. And think about her, she's only 10 years old. She's called her back and she called the dog back and the dog ran out right in front of a car driven by an elderly couple going in the other direction. Her leash got wrapped up in the wheel, and it was a Mm. particularly gruesome injury that uh, didn't quite kill her, but pretty close, which all the kids saw. Uh, The police were called, and when they arrived, they yelled for the girls to go home, and as they were going home, they heard a couple of gunshots as the officer put their beloved pet out of its misery. It was a horrible, traumatic event. And that was the beginning of a series of events in that area and in the neighborhood that seemed to just start going downhill fast. And Andrea Perrone describes it very well in her book. You know, Vietnam was ramping up in terms of the U.S. involvement. There was also some neighborhood kids in the area now that were bad kids. They were Mm -hmm. attacking other kids in the neighborhood, bullies. They actually sexually assaulted another girl after tying her up at a playground. And two of the worst instigators in that group of kids actually lived right next door to the Perones. So it's a thing that you might be kind of worrying to a parent. might make you want to move, right?
1: Yes.
2: Well, the family was pretty distraught after the death of the dog, so they decided they're going to take a vacation. And uh, they planned it all up. They got packed up, and they went to leave. At this point, they still had four cats, two Siamese cats, and two strays that they took care of.
3: Hi, I'm Carrie Neitz. When I'm not writing stories like Amish Vampires in Space, I'm listening to Astonishing Legends. Now back to the show.
1: Now to be clear, yeah, this place where uh, the, where the bad kids lived, this yeah. was not at the Arnold Estate yet.
2: No, nowhere right. near it. Okay, yeah, right. Okay. Almost a half hour away. We are in the town of Cumberland. The Conjuring Town, where the rest of this story takes place, is in Harrisville. So this is all before, technically, if you only know the movie, this all happens before the movie even starts. Yes, right. So um, they go on this vacation. Apparently, they took a wonderful trip somewhere. She doesn't detail where or what they did, but she said they had great time. When they come back home, they're all refreshed. They come back to their little house in Cumberland, Rhode Island. But when they arrived, they were horrified to see that the house was absolutely and completely trashed. Everything Mm. was destroyed. Someone had broken into the house. There was a freezer full of meat in the basement that had been torn apart. The freezer did. And oil had been dumped on the meat and had been left to rot. The food was Uh. all wasted. Someone had uh, spilled food all over the floors, torn up the kitchen, torn up just the whole house just was completely trashed. One of the two stray cats was found hiding in a bush. It had been brutally assaulted. And both Siamese cats were missing. Hmm. After a little bit, a local kid from a block or two over comes over, hat in hand, I guess, just really upset, and confessed that he knew what had happened. And he said that the 12-year-old boy right next door to them had initiated the whole thing and even beat one of the cats to death with a baseball bat. So uh, Carolyn, of course, is completely beside herself. She goes over, confronts the mom next door. The mom mm-hmm. covers for this kid, who briefly appeared in eyesight in the background inside the house, and they could see that he was covered in scratches from oh, beating the cat to death. Oh. So, uh, legal action, of course, started to happen, but during that time, the kids were not jailed. They were free to roam around, and it was a really traumatic experience, especially for Andrea, who was still getting over the death of the dog.
1: This is like a Stephen King Yeah, it's horrible.
2: Novel. Yeah, and that's why I was like, I can't believe this didn't make it into the movie. Because I watched the movie the other night, so it's still fresh in my head. Uh, My wife told me that we'd seen it together years ago, but I don't think I had. It was nothing about it was familiar to me. So, um, (laughs) of course, I'm getting older, so who knows? Well, well, we all are, so it's probably a little from column A, a little from column B. Yes, but uh, either way, I was truly amazed that, that this was some really rich material that you could have put into, you know, a short little montage of what motivated them to get out to the country. Right. But nevertheless, less, there were problems here. And for Andrea, after having lost her dog and now her favorite cat finding out that it was beaten to death by a 12-year-old boy, you know, delinquent next door, she snapped.
1: Yeah, I would have snapped at that kid at the time. And, and where is he now? What is a person like that growing up, which sounds like the germination of a seed of evil...
2: Where are they now? I don't know where they are. I don't want Uh, to guess. I mean I don't want to know. You know, you could ask, but I mean the kids that I went to high school like that are either in most cases either deceased or in jail, to be honest. The ones that behave that way by this point. Right. Who knows where he's at? But Andrea decided that she was going to hatch a plan for revenge. She really descended into a state of rage, and it took days for her to execute this plan. She waited until she could find that kid out, separated from his mom, who she called a bodyguard in her book. Mm. And she attacked him viciously, beat him down, broke his nose, generally just beat on him for minutes. And she had wanted to kill him, but a witness pulled her off of him and sent her home. And although in her book, in volume one, anyway, she's referred to in third person, she is an author of it and it is self published. And at the end of this passage about this, she said, or she said that Andrea, I guess, referring to herself, Andrea's mission had failed because she wanted him dead.
1: Good for her, though, to beat him within an inch. Of his life.
2: Well, I think it was only an inch of his life because she got pulled off of him, and violence right, well, is never the answer for us. <laughs> no, it is not. No, but, like
1: I said, but sometimes you like to see people get their just desserts, yes. don't
2: you? Well, yeah. apparently the charges were dropped. There's not a lot of elaboration there, but. Um, it seems like all of this was part of what was getting Carolyn and Roger thinking about moving. Carolyn more so than Roger because financially it just didn't seem like something they could do.
1: It's quite a remarkable story, but one thing I wanted to address because this is another thing that people always say, and and comics are famous for this. Uh, I think Eddie Murphy in his routine, uh, Delirious famously says this about horror movies. It's like, why are you still there? And so this is something that Andrea also said, everybody asks her, why did your family stay there so long if this is all happening? Well, you have to consider the economic times of the era and what people were going through. And we're going to talk about that in greater detail later on when they actually get to the house. But it's not that simple. If you've ever tried to get out of a house you just bought, it's not like taking a blender back at Costco.
2: Yeah, that's the thing. And If you've never owned a home or tried to purchase one, what a lot of people don't understand is that the only part of it you own right after you've closed the deal is however much the down payment was. And mm-hmm. a lot of times a good portion of that has gone to the cost of closing on it. So you really don't own much of it at all. So if you're in a house like this, and back then you could put less money down than you are required to do, especially after the subprime mortgage problem in the 2000s. So when you go to sell the house, what you walk away, the bank owns most of it, and so you only have a few thousand dollars or maybe $10,000 when you leave. You can't go get into another house for that. So it's really, really difficult to make that jump, as a lot of people are finding out these days. There's no question, though, that Roger and Carolyn knew that this was not a great situation. What was going on here between the dog and the cat and the delinquents next door? Things were not great. And Carolyn, I think, had that spidey sense. She was like, I got to get my kids out of here. I don't care what the situation is. We got to get them out of here. But Roger was adamant that they couldn't afford it. There's no way they're going to be able to do anything now. And on top of that, he had to get back out on the road, back to his job because he had a sales job, um, which was it's uh, Andrea doesn't go into a lot of detail about it. I'd love to ask mm-hmm. her about it if we get a chance to talk to her. But... For whatever reason, he was out on the road a lot and had to travel a lot. In the movie, I think they portray uh,
1: him as a long-haul trucker. Yes, so, I saw again, that.
2: Yeah. I saw there was a truck in the yard, and they implied that. But I, I don't think that's what it was, but maybe it was. It's It was right. described as a salesman in the book. Mm-hmm. Either way, maybe he had all that going on. And they, I know he's a hardworking guy. But here's here's the next thing that happened. This was the straw that broke the camel's back. Turns out that Carolyn had made a little rock garden out by the entrance to the driveway to this house in Cumberland. And in this mm-hmm. rock garden, she had a a big stone and she had planted some you know beautiful flowers around it, like a normal little rock garden situation. But it would seem that this stone was shaped a little bit like a tombstone, which mm. was an accident. It was just kind of a large rock that looked kind of like a tombstone. And yeah. one morning... One of their neighbors who lived, I guess, down the hill, the house below them is how it's described in the book, got in his truck to leave. And as soon as he turned it on, he had a heart attack, a massive heart attack, and died. And the truck just came up the hill right into their driveway and smashed into the tombstone at the end of the driveway where he was found dead in the truck. No way. This is after the dog died, and I'm not making light of that. This is after the dog died, after the group of delinquents destroyed the house and killed one of the cats with a baseball bat, and now we've got the neighbor crashing his car into the tombstone-like rock at the end of the driveway after having a massive art attack.
1: Well, see, that would be what would uh, be considered a synchronicity event. Yeah. The tombstone was uh, not—it's not for him, of course. No one's buried there. It's just an ornament— In their rock garden. Yeah. But it ends up having significance tied to another event just by causality. Yeah. two separate things. Anyway, so that was Yeah, and here's the thing. He
2: was dead before he hit it. And while they were uh, dealing with the aftermath of it, the mother of the juvenile delinquent next door comes out yelling at Carolyn about the tombstone in her driveway. Mm Mm-hmm. And again, this all—it sounds like a a scene from a Spielberg movie. All this stuff that's happening—I can't believe this (laughs) didn't make it into the film. Yeah, it's it. It's the uh, remember the
1: the the bad egg that goes to the. Sanitarium. Yes. And yes, he has something evil whispering into his ear, goading him on. It sounds like this.
2: Yeah. And of course, a lot of us, maybe most of us, have run into a family like that. Well, after all of this happened, in addition to everything that was going on there, the wife of the gentleman who had the heart attack started calling Carolyn a witch, accused Gosh. her of being a witch. Right. Right, because she's like, oh, you put a tombstone and what's going on up there? So <laughs> this was it for her. And she's trying to talk Roger into the moving. He's like, we don't have any equity in this house. There's no way we can move. We can't afford it. Yeah. And she's beside herself. She's worried about her kids. She's worried about how angry Andrea has become. And she's worried about the neighborhood in general. And probably also on the news, the Vietnam War is escalating. Uh, everything is probably closing in, and there's um, a feeling happening that they need to get out, that they need to move, and she wants to do something about it. Well, Roger's out of town on business again, and according to Andrea, Carolyn had gone to take her to a music lesson, and she needed to kill time while she was waiting for Andrea to finish her music lesson, so she picked up this newspaper— To read like you do when you're a parent waiting for your kid to finish X, Y, or Z, soccer game, or whatever. This was a northern Rhode Island paper called the Woonsocket Call. It's now just called The Call. It's been around for 128 years at this point. It was already 78 years old the day that Carolyn picked it up to cure her boredom. And on that day, as she thumbed through the paper, she arrived at the classified ads. Now, not a lot of people reading papers anymore, but for those of you youngsters who don't <laughs> look at the classified ads, that's a bunch of little tiny ads and boxes, and usually in the back pages of maybe the uh, section A or section B, where there's all kinds of things for sale. It's the Facebook marketplace, except back when it was in print. Yeah. So uh, she's looking through here, and as she's looking through them, she's not looking for anything in particular. She comes across an ad that really caught her eye, and it said, quote, Nine-room colonial farmhouse with barn plus 200 acres, Harrisville, $75,000. That was it, mm. just that small collection of words. That's from page 11 of her book. And that's how I, so I was looking up these rates. That's $375 an acre, not including the house. And uh, I took a look up there today. The going rate for one particular good chunk of similar farmland is now $2,379. However... Ooh. In 1971, 375 was equal to about 2400. So mm-hmm. it seems like the okay. market is flat in Harrisville <laughs> between 1971 and now. Uh, if you if you take inflation into account, yes, right, right, right. Yes.
1: Okay, so it's holding its value. But 200 acres is nothing to sneeze at. I'd no, that's have, a
2: that's uh, a good chunk of land. Years. And sure. Well, I guess when she saw this ad, it was well after 9 p.m. But something about it compelled her to call the realtor that very night, and she did, and she wound up making an appointment to see it alone while Mm. Roger was out of town. She never mentioned to the realtor that there was no way, even at that price, that her family could afford the house. Well, her best friend came over, Kathy, who's referred to frequently in the book, and uh, she drove out to see the house by herself. And she went out to it with the realtor. I guess it's, I think it's implied in the same car. The village of Harrisville was quiet and beautiful, and the road to the farm was long and winding, and it just got more and more beautiful as they went. Carolyn was beside herself with excitement. When they got to the property, the first thing she saw was the barn, a great big barn. So another thing that was left out of the movie, more on that in Mm -hmm. a bit, but this barn was amazing. It actually had survived a devastating hurricane in 1938 that destroyed most of the surrounding area, most of the structures, but it did not hurt this barn. We actually looked this storm up. It was back before they named storms, but it was truly monumental. Not only was this hurricane incredibly destructive, there was a reported 15-foot tidal surge that destroyed multiple communities, uh, including uh, uh, lots of damage in Providence, Rhode Island. So why didn't the barn get taken out by this storm? Well, the property owner explained it. The man selling this property was home, when Carolyn and the realtor arrived. His name was Mr. Kenyon. Mr. Kenyon was a tall, elderly man that the Perones described as incredibly kind, with kind eyes and pockets full of candy for the kids. He seemed both warm and inviting, but also deeply sad for some reason. Hmm. I seem to remember Andrea writing that they thought maybe he was sad to leave the house behind. Yeah. It was Mr. Kenyon who explained that the barn had been built by a shipwright, Arches built into these giant oak beams meant that it was built to give and sway in bad weather, much like a ship at sea, and this was why it survived the 1938 hurricane that took down trees and buildings for miles in every direction. Barn's significant for a lot of other reasons, though, too. You see, in the original Conjuring movie, they talk about a woman hanging herself from a tree on the property. Turns out it wasn't a tree at all. It was the rafters of this barn. Mrs. John Arnold, hanged herself at the age of 93 from those rafters. And that wasn't the only suicide on the property, but Mr. Mm. Kenyon didn't mention that. Carolyn and her family would learn more about that later. Mr. Kenyon also explained that the house was part of the Providence Plantations. And uh, historically, I didn't know what this was. I had to look this up. Here's the first paragraph on the wiki entry for that. Providence Plantations was the first permanent European-American settlement in Rhode Island established by a group of colonists led by Roger Williams and Dr. John Clark, who left Massachusetts Bay Colony in order to establish a colony with greater religious freedom. Providence Plantations became the colony of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations, which became the state of Rhode Island and Providence Plantations after the American Revolution. Mr. Kenyon said the property had been deeded in 1680 and the house finished in 1736 and rumor had it that it was part of the underground railroad too he then added and this is a quote this is a wonderful place to raise a family mm. quote. are we heading here towards something
1: existential pulling carolyn perone to this property and her family I just I want a little bit of a tidbit hint here.
2: Well, I think that might be what's going on. As the okay. details unfold, you're going to find out that there's a lot more than meets the eye when it comes to this story yeah. and what drew her to that house yeah. in the first place. And this yeah. is just the beginning of that relationship. Again, right, all stuff that right. took place before the movie even starts. Right. I can't believe this was all left out. But anyway, so here, Carolyn is just completely enamored with it. The land is beautiful. It's sunny. It's gorgeous. The house is amazing. It's a a big piece of land. Roger is out on the road for work, and she writes a check for $500 on the spot in what they call earnest money. That's like a deposit Mm -hmm. right there. Takes nearly all the money that she and Roger had to their name. Uh, Except for you know a little bit left over for food for the next week or two, she bought the farm, or intended (laughs) to. Anyway, yeah, not not in. (laughs) Yeah, I just wanted to work a dad joke in. Like I see, okay, still could. Um, a few characters in the story will or will hear about them. Yeah. Well. Okay. She goes back home. Roger comes back off the road. They have a heated discussion. He's like, you did what? He could not believe it. And I want to be clear here that the way Andrea describes her parents' relationship is there's not any disrespect between them. They have different minds about things, but there's not of like – There's not that 50s vibe of like, you're a woman, you went out and bought a house. It's more just like, (laughs) what are you doing? We can't afford this, you know? And her saying, I know we can't, but we need to do it with this. Is horrible. We can't stay here. Look what happened to the dog and the cat and the and the gravestone in the yard. Well, she probably didn't call it that. But and he was like, (laughs) Yeah, I know, you're right, all that stuff stinks, but we don't have any equity in this house. We can't do this. There's no way we can do this. And she's like, please, just come take a look at it. Please. And he's like, all right, fine. I'll look at it. And so they head out there with the girls to go look at this house. Mr. Kenyon's there. He's waiting for them. He's got candy for the kids. They're all standing around looking. And Roger has a good feeling about it. It's a beautiful day. He's kind of taken in by it. Mr. Kenyon, who's very sweet, uh, tells the kids they can go run and do whatever they want, go wherever they want, which... Andrea said made Carolyn very nervous because she knew they were mm. crazy. They would get out and get crazy. <laughs> there's streams. There's all this land. And um, as they're exploring it, Roger's trying to focus on, okay, I've got to, you know, I've got to sort of inspect it. Is it. Is the roof good? Does it have, you know, yeah. does it have good bones? And he's trying to stay focused, but he's also very much pulled in by this house and this possibility of this idyllic life that they might have here when they think about what they're facing back in Cumberland. So he's walking around. They're trying to figure out which way he's going to go. And finally, at one point, he goes down to this creek on the property. He takes his shoes off. He's walking in the water. He's having a moment, basically. Mm, And mm. he comes back, and he agrees that they need to try and get it. So they decide that they're going to try and purchase this place. And they have a discussion, and I'm compressing time here, but they have a discussion with the realtor and Mr. Kenyon. And Mr. Kenyon agrees to give them as much time as they need to get some kind of deal figured out or to raise money. So the family goes home, they're excited, but they also don't have any idea how they're going to do this because even if they sell this other house, it's not going to be enough money. There's a survey that comes in and it's like, oh, it's not 200 acres, it's really 190. Mr. Kenyon's like, they must have screwed up the survey, but I'll tell you what, Mm. I'll come down off my price. He came down a little bit. Now, coming back to the existential question that you asked earlier, Forrest, and this is the other thing that's interesting, is, you know, they were nervous that they were going to lose it. Carolyn was nervous that she was going to lose it. But they later found out that she had called the day the ad was placed, the first day the ad was placed. She was the only one that called. No one else ever even came to look at it. Mm. And Andrea points out in the book, she's like, it was as if the universe was reserving that house for her. Well, the house was waiting for them. It was. And it, it's, that's an ominous thing, but there's also a positive side to the story. And, and that's what's interesting. There's a yin and yang to this. We talk about the balance of good and evil, the forces of light and darkness, if you believe any of this at all, and all that these things happen, <laughs> This wasn't all just horrible negativity. Although the no. negativity was intense, there was also a very intense positivity that contributed almost to a euphoria when they went to look at it in the daytime in the beautiful summer. Yeah.
1: And I will say, as Andrea does, this is the point of the whole story and the title of her books. There was light as well as darkness. Exactly. Now, they all had different experiences because as she says in her interview here with Jim, their mom, of course, felt differently because she felt like she was under attack while there. And she was. But for the five daughters... It was a mix of scary and wonderful times. It was a a grab bag. It's never usually just one thing like life is. Life is joy and pain and and fear and wonder. It's all these things rolled into one. It just happens to be at this house that they move into. It's very
2: intense. And uh, they have some elements from the other side helping that along. Eventually, they've got Roger on board now and they're trying to figure out how to do this. They're going to find a way to make it work. And then the next... (laughs) There's like at least a half a chapter, maybe more it seemed like to me, dedicated to the family working together in a, a very Brady Bunch kind of way to raise money. Uh, the girls are making pot holders and macrame and all this homemade stuff and selling it here and there and everywhere. And everyone is just working together. Honestly, I, I couldn't stop thinking of the Brady Bunch. Is working together <laughs> to raise money so they can buy this house. Again, a Brady Bunch theme, because they had to raise money to save their house in the Brady Bunch movie, one of them. Yeah. But anyway, <laughs> I digress. So... Mm-hmm. They're scraping the money together, and one of the things that Mr. Kenyon, the owner of the home, agrees to do is to hold the place for them as long as it takes for them to get their act together to close the deal. And this could wind up being months and months. One of the moments that struck me in the book, and there were a lot of them, this one was on page 30, when Carolyn talks about how when they came back to the family home in Cumberland after agreeing to buy the farmhouse in Harrisville, uh, which is about a 30-minute drive, I think. I'm not sure. Haven't driven it. It's just a Google Maps calculation. Maybe it's more or less. But she said when they came back into Cumberland, it felt foreign. Mm. She was already out the door of that Cumberland house in her mind. When you think about everything that happened to them there, it reminded me of how you feel when you know you're about to leave somewhere or you're working a notice out out of a job that you've already quit. Or (laughs) Mm -hmm. in my case, I actually went back to a place I used to work. It was a place I loved. I mean, I really liked all the people. I enjoyed working there. They were like family to me. But coming back after a few years just felt totally and completely Mm. wrong. And I've always thought there was something more to that feeling than just being out of sorts about it. And
1: You, you mean like uh, v- visiting your first grade class and trying to sit in one of those little it, tiny chairs? Yeah,
2: it's, just, it's not going to work. And I've, 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 the, yeah. the thing for me for us is like I wonder if that's how Carolyn felt about getting out of that house where so much bad stuff had happened, Yeah, all starting with the death of their dog, which we talked about at mm-hmm. the top of the show. It makes me wonder if your mind is trying to resist going back in time somehow, if there's more to it than just a feeling. You know, like the opposite of deja vu or like, I I don't need to be here again. I shouldn't be doing this again. Well, when they finally managed to get moved in and they pulled up to the house, Mr. Kenyon was there and waiting for them with hot chocolate and cookies. Uh, But yeah, it's very nice, very nice man. But there was one thing that Mr. Kenyon said that day just before leaving the home. He pulled Roger aside and he said, and I quote, leave the lights on at night.
1: Oh boy. End quote.
2: Now, here's the thing. Roger was the guy. He was like me at the Sally house. He was like, yeah, I don't know. I don't. That doesn't mean anything to me. OK, leave the lights on. I don't know what that means. OK, fine. <laughs> that moment didn't really come back to him until way later after things started happening and he had to face the music about what was going on in that house. Well,
1: I don't know if that's something you want to hear from the person departing and handing you the keys. It's like, why? And I'm not sure he explained it right there or that they would have believed him if he had. But here's an interesting insight about that transition, taking ownership of the place from Andrea. And this comes from her interview with Jim Harold. Again, we're going to be referencing this and and I I basically uh, transcribed it in certain areas because it really illuminates and backs up what Scott is saying, but gives some additional insight to things. So as Andrea says in the interview with Jim, she wants people to know, keep in mind, we had visited this farm uh, before. It, it took about five and a half months from the moment my mother found it to when my parents actually closed on the property. So during that time, they had become very good friends with dear old Mr. Kenyon, as she says, who was selling the property, my family. And we went a number of times to the property. They visited a few times. And I'm going to be, uh, it's a mix of me paraphrasing, but also uh, exactly what she said here. But the idea she wants to express here is they visited this place a number of times before they moved in and nothing ever happened. She says, we went a number of times and none of us had any sense of something being untoward or any odd sensation. In other words, they did not come around us, meaning the spirits, while we were potential buyers. But the moment we owned it, and I do mean to tell you immediately, the day we moved in, stuff started happening. Then she tells about them actually moving in here. So uh, the day they moved in, her father hands her a large box. Right now, you got to realize this is the first week in January 1971. They're in the midst of a snowstorm. So you don't get that in the movie. But the snowstorm is happening because their mother didn't want to move in December, right before Christmas. And you wouldn't want to do that.
2: Yeah, and something else I want to point out that Andrea makes clear in the book is that the snowstorms, especially when they first moved in, were brutal brutal yeah. these are intense <laughs> snowstorms lots of snowfall mr kenyon even explained that he said it gets a little crazy here and they it was hard for them to like plow out the driveway access to get in and out it was a big deal and like it would it would melt down but not quite enough and pile up again right. anybody who lives in the northeast uh has been through this i've been through it myself and it, yeah. it can be very trying at first you're like oh this is so pretty wow, this yeah. is cool. And then you're like, oh my God, I can't get to the store. It's like, yeah. it, it changes fast. <laughs> <When it's, so. laughs>
1: yeah, there's a difference between one and two feet and three and four feet of snow.
2: Yeah, that then melts down to two feet and then another two Ugh. feet come on top of it. It's hardcore. Yeah. yeah. And that was something that she talked about. And Andrea also talks about for Carol and her mom, how, how frigidly cold she was. But it wasn't just about that. It was something supernatural, right. that coldness, right. which is why she was all always bundled up. But it, we'll hear more about that later. But
1: there's a lot more to this. This interview that if you're really interested in the story, you you need to hear this. So we can't recommend enough signing up for Jim Harold's Paranormal Plus Club. But I want to relay this bit, this anecdote here, because it's one of several that she tells that starts to set up an idea, a concept of what might be happening and what exactly is haunting this place. So this is what she recollects as the first thing really happening. And again, it's moving day. They're moving in. So dad handed me a box. I carried it through the parlor door and into the dining room. And I greeted a man who was standing in the far corner near the door that goes into the front hallway towards the kitchen. And the box he had was labeled kitchen. So I knew where I was going. And this gentleman, he was staring at Mr. Kenyon, who was packing the last of his belongings out of the china cabinet in the dining room and I greeted him. I said, good morning. But he didn't respond at all to me. He remained fixated on Mr. Kenyon. And he had a very pleasant face and a quirky little grin, and I just kept walking. My sister Christine came in right behind me, and she said, Mom, who is that other man in the dining room? And my mother said, what other man? It's Mr. Kenyon. Maybe it's his son. And we knew who his son was because he was helping move things out. And she, Christine, said, no, it's it's not his son. Who's that other man? And my mom said, there's no other man here. So then Cindy came in and said, mom, who's the other guy standing in the dining room? So all the daughters are noticing this guy, right? Yeah, that's, that's creepy right there. Yeah. <laughs> What's nice about it is that at least he had a pleasant face and a yes. quirky little smile. Yeah. He, yeah. he wasn't some horrible specter of death. Okay. Right. He wasn't uh Vanek, the freaky nun. He seems like just a nice old guy, but nobody knows who he is. They've, they've met everybody there. Now here's the interesting bit. Andrea goes on to say, when I saw him, he was solid. When Christine saw him, he was solid. Cindy saw him almost as translucent. And when Nancy came through, she said, you know, that guy, that other man in the dining room, he just disappeared. And she leaned over and said it to Cindy, who gave her kind of a sideways glance. And then, of course, dad was yelling, where are my girls? More boxes, more boxes. You know, stop lollygagging. Get the stuff moved in here. It's a snowstorm happening. Here's what's interesting about that, though, is that he may be in various states of manifestation. Andrea is seeing him as solid. Christine is seeing him as as solid. Cindy, he's starting to fade a little. And then Nancy sees him, and basically he just poof. He just vanishes.
2: But so the question is, and this is the question I have about this, and this talks to the mechanics of... You know, we need uh, Dan Aykroyd's character from Ghostbusters. This talks about the mechanics <laughs> right. of these appearances. Right. Because since we've started this show, I've come to think, first of all, you know, we have to get past the yeah. point of like, oh, if you believe any of this at all, and you know, sure. Wait. And just go with it, folks. He, yeah. yeah. Here's the thing And Andrea Perrone uh, says that she has lots of evidence. Her family has evidence and uh, photographs and all right. that stuff. There's not, I've not seen a ton of that stuff in this case, necessarily. Mm-hmm. But I feel like the words, the words feel very genuine in her book. They feel yeah, very real. Yeah. But that being said, so if you're saying, okay, yes, I believe in all these things. I believe in these ghosts. I believe they're all seeing the same guy. And you know, I do find it hard to believe that an entire family would conspire to make up a story as complex as this one. That's a complicated thing to do. Anyone that has a big family knows you can barely agree on whether to go to Chick-fil-A mm-hmm. or King, like getting together on all these details or something, it's hard to imagine. That said, I wonder about these varying degrees of appearance, if that is in the mind of the or the eye of the beholder, or if it's something that everyone would see if they were all there together, because this is a recurring theme for us, for us, especially in the past couple of episodes we've done, or when I say past couple, I mean the past few months. Where, uh, like, for example, even when we talked about the Phantom Horse of Greensboro with Tommy Beaver about how uh, three out of the four people saw this thing and one didn't, but they were all there at the exact same spot. Right. The other thing that we we seem to know from history anyway is it seems to be an indication that the younger you are, the more susceptible you are or the more tuned in you are to things on the other side of the veil. And maybe there's Mm -hmm. something going on there. But I I think that's all very interesting. I think there's a lot of factors at play. That's
1: my opinion forming after hearing all these anecdotes and, and with this topic, especially and this episode, geez, I took notes on, I can't remember who said this exactly. Maybe it was Jim Harold, but everybody's looking for one solution that answers everything. It's like, this is what all ghosts are. It's just this. And that's what we're looking for because it's such a far out mind blowing topic. That's hard to, For us to wrap our heads around to begin with, that anything that's a variation, and well, there's a lot of factors, and it depends on this and that, and who's looking at what, it's more than we want to have to deal with in our comprehension of this. But I believe that it depends on who's looking, where they're looking from physically, standing, what the specter is that they're staring at, and how it affects them. And how their eyes interpret images.
2: So you're trying to trigger me because it's a Mothman quote. It's one of the, my, another one of my favorite lines from Mothman. Yeah. I, it's, I love how many times we can bring up Rich's script, but like, and, right. and who knows? There's lots of rewrites and stuff, and he'll tell you, oh, I didn't write this line. I wrote that one. So I'm not trying to give him credit for everything, but <laughs> yeah. there's a line in that movie, no matter who wound up writing it, that I love. Where mm-hmm. I think it's Richard Gere is talking to Indrid Cold and he says, what do you look like? And Indrid Cold says over the phone in this electronic voice almost, depends on who's looking. <laughs> and that's the exact point I was just trying to make. I made it in a much more convoluted way that took me 25 minutes to explain. If Rich had been here, he could have done it in a second. But right. depends on who's looking, which is something you just said offhandedly. I don't even think you were thinking about it, but that's it does depend on who's looking. All ghost interactions and personal experiences depend on who's looking. You could be standing right next to somebody, they see something, and the other person doesn't. Are they any different? Is
1: there, you know, who knows what the factors are? Does it matter about belief? No, because people say, like, well, all the people that believe in that stuff see that kind of nonsense. It's like, no, they, they do not. You're absolutely wrong about that. There's a lot of people who didn't take stock in any of that. And that was maybe the intended audience for this stuff because it knows you're going to be extra freaked out and scared. You don't appear to the ghost hunter because they've seen a thousand of you. So there's some intention behind it. What I'm talking about is uh, perhaps as the girls, as the daughters were seeing him one by one, his energy was fading or his manifestation powers, because I also believe that too, having been around some ghost hunters is that, well, in lightning storms, they seem to manifest easier. They're using ozone. Whatever whatever it is, they need the energy. They're soaking it up. That's one thing we're seeing with this story here. If this is some kind of grand, made-up fictional story by all of them colluding, it's a pretty good supernatural thriller because some of these incidences, you know what that reminds me of, or, or what's described in Shirley Jackson's The Haunting of Hill House. If you've seen the, the series or read the book, and of course people say, well, they're a lot different. Some like the series didn't like the books, and vice versa. That's just how people are with their preferred media. Worst episode ever. (laughs) Worst episode ever. (laughs) It sounds fantastic, but there's elements of what Andrea is describing or had described that seem to fit with one-off incidences. And we've had people tell us stories, believe it, folks, trying to get us to believe a few things like, well, I got this fantastic story. You guys want to cover it or do you want to know more about it? And then when you hear the details, it's like, okay, that's much more than any of uh, ghost hunter I know of has, has ever reported. Yeah. Ever happening. Like a ghost comes in and the whole building blows up. I mean, seriously, it, it, things like that where it's like, oh, okay, dude, that's like from a movie. And I think it's when people imagine something And maybe, as we said before, there's a kernel of truth in an instance of something really happening, and then they extrapolate from that because I have to capture your attention better. This needs to be bigger, more dramatic. There has to be explosions. You have to be, the ghost has to be walking away from it and not turning around to see the explosion. (laughs) It's too much. In this case of the Perrone family story, things happen and they're freaky, but they fit within that realm of Possibilities. You look at the haunting of Hill House, and I enjoyed it very much. I thought it was spooky, and there's a lot of characters mashed in there because it's got to be dramatic. It's got to scare you, but altogether, it's a bit much. But this story of the Perones comes close to that in its terrifying nature and the amount of stuff that it was happening, and also the manipulation of perceived reality. Right.
2: Back in late 2016, we started asking you guys to send in segues that we could use to play us back into the show after commercial break. And have we gotten some great stuff from you guys since then?
3: I'm Holly, and my husband William and I listen to Astonishing Legends every weekend for date night.
0: I'm Jen Cash, and I listen to Astonishing Legends with my dog Andy. I'm Sandra,
3: and this is
0: Astonishing Legends.
3: This is Jesse. Thank you for listening to Astonishing Legends. Hello, this is the Count of St. Germain otherwise known as Kevin
1: Pollock, and you're listening to Astonishing Legends. That was roughly 150 episodes ago, which means we've probably used somewhere between four
2: and 500 of those now. Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's really kind of surprising how quick you all were to give away the rights to your voices.
3: And I give permission to Astonishing Legends to use my voice however they see fit. Galaxy-wide. Galaxy-wide. Galaxy-wide in
4: perpetuity. In perpetuity.
2: We have gotten so many segues from you guys, and that's been great, and they lasted a long time, but every now and then, the well runs dry. And we'll remind you that we need more of them, which is what we're doing now. These things are so easy to make, and we actually have a page on our website that tells you exactly how to send them in. If you go to astonishinglegends.com and hover over the word contact right at the top on the main page, you'll see a submenu that says listener segues. Click on that and it will tell you exactly
1: what to do. And don't be afraid to go off script. Those are some of our favorite ones.
3: Have you ever wondered what it's like on the other side?
0: If I'm not chasing chickens, I'm probably listening to Astonishing Legends.
3: Hey guys, Richard Haddam here. I just wanted to send out some good wishes to Scott and Phil, and I think one of you is named... Burgess. When you gaze into the abyss, the abyss gazes back. Hey, this is Elena.
5: I'm thinking about how hot Forrest's voice is. Hey, Forrest!
3: Greetings, comrades! I am Christoph Sandrason. Hello, this is Dr. Heinz Doofenshmirtz. I'm not planning on taking over the Tri-State Area today because I'm too busy listening to the Astonishing Legends podcast.
2: Ooh, okay, so some of those are pretty weird, but that stuff is great. <laughs> uh, look, folks, oh, we need more of these, so send them in now. We don't often ask for these because when we get them, believe it or not, we have a tendency to use every single one until we run out, unless there's some kind of technical issue with them. 70 or 80 of them are going to fill the tank up for another year or so, so get them in in now. Remember, just go to astonishinglegends.com, hover over the contact menu, and click on listener segues.
0: Hey, it's Tess. This one time I emailed listener segues al at gmail.com, and all I got was a segue. Come on. All right, back to the show.
3: Fantastic.
1: So, getting back to Mr. Kenyon, what I was going to say is that you ever seen those sculptures? I, I think I saw this at the University of Washington. There was an art installation, and it was kind of a cool idea. An artist had taken, like, lateral slats, like you see uh, with old plaster and slats, uh, wall construction. Yeah. Thin strips of wood. They were all horizontal, and the edges of the slats were were in different shapes, basically outlines of people, okay? Okay. So if you stood to the side of it, and you were looking down the length of these rods, these strips of wood, these dowels, you could even say, it didn't look like anything, right? You're just going to see vertical, like, 2D poles with wood coming out, but they're parallel to you, right? Not perpendicular. Yeah. yeah. So you would see like a, a, like seven standing wood poles, poles are going away from you. You don't really see anything. However, if you walk around to the front of that, because now the poles are overlapping, the wooden rods are now overlapping the slats in a shape that's a cutout. You see now a shape of a human being. I know this is really hard to explain, but okay. Something much simpler Orion the Too constellation
2: all that yeah i know i know but, but, uh, but
1: i think people i think people will get that what yeah, i'm yeah. what i'm saying is that yeah you look at it from one angle and because of the way that the wood has been uh, cut on the ends that's one half of the shape of a human being right and on the other side you have the opposite thing so matched together you've got the outline of a person if you look at it from the side it's nothing simpler explanation i just thought of the constellation orion you know, with the with the three stars in the belt yes. and all that. Yes, Only looks like that from Earth. If you go out to any other point in space, well, it's nothing. It's just a bunch of stars. We know it as Orion, and it's yes. got the, the classic three stars in the belt t- together. But at any other point in space, it doesn't make that image. It depends on where you're looking from. So maybe ghosts are like that.
2: When they're manifesting, you might see different things. So maybe they should change that line in the movie. It should be like, instead of depends on who's looking, which had a a beautiful brevity to it. It should just be more like, (laughs) depends on who's looking and also where you're staring (laughs) and how the weather is. (laughs)
3: <laughs> yes yeah
1: other <laughs> factors i cannot go into
2: but but it could be that way i mean that's the thing yeah. i'm making fun of that but like maybe it is more complex everything isn't just this beautiful elegant thing it's there's complexities to it you know because
1: you brought it up and i've been waiting to talk about this and i don't mean to get us off the rails but i think this is very appropriate and uh, germane yeah. to the conversation is that for a long time now you've been talking to me about flatland you remember that? Yes, of course. Yeah.
2: I finally saw a clip of it that, geez, I think somebody
1: on well, Twitter, clip, one of it's our- It's a book,
2: but yes. Yes, but this is- this You don't is have a, a clip a, of a book. It was a book in the 1800s. Whatever talking, film they made, yeah, that's yes, downstream. This, this is, is not a film about this. What I'm talking about
1: is that this is an animated clip that I saw, which explains oh, one yes. condition of that. Yes. And it, it is from the What the Bleep channel, and it's, uh, I can't remember, I don't want to say a name because I'm going to get it wrong, but some, one of our longtime listeners and close followers on Twitter proposed it to us, and I should start writing these people's names down so I can think them properly, but this is called Dr. Quantum Flatland, okay, and it's it's put out by, I believe, uh, the what the bleep down the rabbit hole folks who do the documentaries, and what it's explaining here is what you're talking about, but it also nicely and neatly and concisely explains Back to the Mothman prophecies, the window washer analogy, which we love to talk about what we first did years ago and how somebody could be perceived to know the future or secret knowledge, but really they're looking from a different vantage point. So you're on the ground, there's a window washer 20 stories up. You see the guy, you wave to him. He's like, oh my God, there's a horrible accident that's happening. He's like, well, what? How do you know that? Are you psychic? I can't see anything. No, he's just up higher than you. Yeah. He can see it. You can't see it yet. Yeah. Now I watched the Dr. Quantum Flatland and he's this this kindly professorial looking superhero type with glasses and and a goatee. And he explains what the difference would be in perception if you existed and communicated with somebody who did not have all the dimensions we do. We live in a three-dimensional world, of course, right? Yes. If you met a being that lives in a two-dimensional world,
2: like your, uh, was it your, your skinwalking? Uh, it came out of the corn stalks, and then when it turned sideways, it was like a piece of paper. Yeah, a straight it's, piece of paper. Yeah,
1: <laughs> exactly. It's yeah. the, the Wile Coyote like story. I don't yeah, like that story. Well, that's what I'm saying, it's disturbing. That's from and Skinwalker that's Ranch, yeah. Yeah, that's what's kind of portrayed here in that if you were 2D, now in this case, though, you should feel better because you have one up on the, uh, the 2D shadow, moving, walking shadow Skinwalker. Yeah. And that they turn and they're completely flat. Now, if you lived in that world of only two dimensions... Your house was just a blueprint, like a 2D piece of paper blueprint, right? And you had rooms and you like could move around. Like the cover around. of
2: Flatland, yeah. That's yeah, what's on the exactly. cover of Flatland, yes.
1: So the way that it's uh, explained in this little animated clip is that he, Dr. Quantum Flatland comes flying in and he's from the 3D world. He Well, he can also fly. But he talks to this, uh, this 2D person who can't see him because this being, she lives in a 2D world. She can only see straight ahead to the left and the right and to the back of her. She cannot see up or down. That dimension is inaccessible to her. So she hears this voice like, oh my gosh, who's speaking to me? This is like, it's a God. It's a spirit who's talking to me. I cannot see you, but I'm hearing you. Right. He says, well, don't be afraid. I'm just in another dimension that you, and you can't see me. And, you know, of course the little dot person, the, uh, (laughs) the Miss Pac-Man doesn't know what's going on. She can hear this voice. And he says, well, I can see uh, in your closet or, you know, you have a safe and you've got a few coins in there and, uh, and, and maybe a passport. And she's freaking out. Like, how do you know that? Are you psychic? He's like, well, no, I can just look down onto your blueprint little house and I can see into it because I'm looking from another dimension that you don't have access to.
2: I love everything you've just said. You're also describing my favorite book to me, and you saved yeah. me the trouble of trying <laughs> to describe the book, so uh, right. kudos. My hat's off. Right. That was excellent.
1: Well, now you, don't, you I don't have to read the book. I can no, just you watch don't have to read it, to it and I don't have
2: to explain it. It's, <laughs> it was great.
1: And, and I don't take credit for it. Of course, it's an old concept, but that's what we're trying to explain here with the window washer principle, and uh, I wish I had a, just another anecdote
2: or analogy to um, here's the interesting thing about this and i don't know if you said this because I, mm-hmm. I my eyes glazed over for a minute and i zoned out I know. but like I'm coming sorry. back <laughs> the thing yeah. about flatland and, and i might have it wrong and maybe mathematicians or uh, enthusiasts can get back to us on this but like i believe that only the higher dimensions can step down into the lower ones but the lower ones cannot step up into the higher ones who are you michio kaku <laughs>
3: <He's> making, <laughs> just
2: he's for he's a making minute, this rule just for wait, a minute wait. Yeah. Well, just wait, think wait, about wait, Where'd you it. get how, this? How is you? The, I'm just thinking about it spatially. I'm a spatial yeah. thinker, and this was the same thing. Right. This is the whole thing for me in college when I went through math and all that. I had problems with formulas and calculus and whatever, but right, when it came right. to geometry, it just clicked. And so when I think about this, the two-dimensional being cannot perceive of the three-dimensional being's world, whereas the three-dimensional being can easily perceive of the two-dimensional world. Right and I, that's how i feel as a three-dimensional being trying to envision the fourth dimensional world i don't think i can do that but maybe if something's living in the fourth dimension it can look look down on our dimension and say oh yeah i understand that i can look down on yeah. this piece of paper and see it and understand it but it can okay. never look up and understand me and this is how dimensions well, work because you know what do you get when you when you when people talk about the fourth dimension and we're really by the way Welcome back to 2015 Astonishing ledges, because this is a good old fashioned tangent. But my, my point is, you know, they, they show you that yeah. box, you look it up on the computer, you can see it, it's mm-hmm. a, the Tesseract. It's, yeah. it's like an M.C. Escher thing where it's a box, but it's not really, it's folding in on itself and all that. And sure, I can look at it and sort of understand it, but not really, right. you know, and I'm well, going yeah, back to the party well, in the other room. So that's the question. <laughs> About like, I I feel like, so coming back to my profound statement that we're going to copyright and trademark it right here, Mm -hmm. the higher dimensions can easily comprehend the lower ones, but it's hard in the lower dimension to understand the next one up. And by the way, the reason we're going on and on about this is because it all relates back to this whole idea of perception as it relates to these spirits if that's what they are or maybe they're just Mm -hmm. a connection in another dimension and blah 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 quantum physics which every paranormal show says every episode now Um, Mm -hmm. that's what we say we say quantum physics mothman blah 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 and we say we're saying the same things over and over and yes we know that but (laughs) it, it feels that way when you've been looking at it for years and years it's it feels like that stuff is part of the recipe it just feels like it you know it's
1: one of many many aspects first of all though A tangent would be if I started telling you and everyone in the audience how I use Little Smokies and Pillsbury Crescent dough to make pigs in blankets. That has nothing to do with what we're talking about now. I'm getting hungry. That's a tangent. Yeah. Point number two is that you then take the curious circumstance of the 2D person. It's like, well, they can't perceive up or down, right? Well, I believe in that clip, Dr. Quantum Flatland pokes his finger into the 2D world. And in that case, he's now breached that 2D world, and this person just sees like a line showing up. You know what I'm saying? If, it's, if you look at See, now we're
2: back to the pancake talk we had with uh, Matt and Adam over at uh, Graveyard right. Tales when we were on, which we mentioned in housekeeping. The, the pancake, the spear going through the pancake, wasn't that with them we were talking about that?
1: Yes. No, there's a lot of anecdotes. Look, at I like the in, pancake because
2: yeah. Adam came up with that, I think, but yeah.
1: Imagine folding space. You have two dots on a piece of paper. Uncle in time. Yeah. Instead of drawing a line between them, like that's how you we think, well, paper. you got to you gotta get in a rocket ship yeah. and you got to make that. We, fire is the only way to get through space. No, we're thinking still in the box. That's just what kills me about uh, all these, you know, the, the Drake equation even. And people,
2: it's like, well, it would just take too long to get here. It's like you're still thinking in the box. Well, the expression that used to drive me crazy along those lines yeah. was life as we know it. Life as we know it could not exist. And it's like, <laughs> how much do we really know about life? Only what's right around us. So And you know,
1: and you only want to know what's comfortable. So yeah. then at that point, though, you fold the paper and the two points meet. And then you punch a hole through the paper. That's bisecting different planes. And in this case, what I'm talking about is when you see something like that in our three dimensions, correlated to the two-dimensional person, that extra-dimensional person or being has punched through. In a way that we can
2: see it temporarily. It's like the hairy thing that came out of the tube at Skinwalker Ranch. It was like, oh, this right. is cool.
1: Obviously, Dr. Quantum Flan poke, you know, he's scaring the the digital crap out of this little circular person, poking his finger through. Yeah. And it's like, oh my gosh, what is that? It's like, well, right. don't be afraid. I'm just I'm just poking my finger through your planar existence here, which is like a sheet of paper. Yeah. But to them, they just see this breach. In their
2: one dimension, and as we see it in three dimensions... Which, by the way, looks like a line, and that's the thing to remember. For them. For them, the cylindrical finger that's poking through the uh, one-dimensional world just looks like a line in their realm. The little uh,
1: Miss Pac-Man, she can also hear this omniscient-seeming being. Uh, This omnipotent being, it's like, I just, I did, I just hear this voice and suddenly this line appears and it can chase me all around. It can bump into me. It can open the, the, my little safe there and take out my flat coins. Yeah. And it can see everything that this person's doing and they can't see them. So you have the upper hand. Right. Getting it back to the story, because like I said, we're trying to figure out what's happening here in the different types of haunting and, and maybe speculate as they correlate to these anecdotes. Okay. So getting back to what Angela says about seeing this nice man with a quirky smile in the living room and more fixated on the lovely Mr. Kenyon, because he's leaving. He was there. He's now changing ownership to this new family. This apparition seems to be focused on Mr. Kenyon and the transition here. So as Andrea continues, well, it was chaos. That was the moving day. And with that incident, we didn't even discuss it for weeks afterwards because already things were happening. Get this. Cindy, within the first night or two that we were in the house, crawled into bed with me and she said, Annie, I hear voices. I hear voices all around me. They're all standing around my bed and they're all saying the same thing at once. And of course, I asked her, What are they saying? And she said, There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. There are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall over and over. And Andrea goes on to say, There wasn't a single night that they didn't tell Cindy that they were there in the 10 years that we lived there. Every night for 10 years, Cindy hears these voices telling her there are seven dead soldiers buried in the wall. Again, this house was built, completed in 1736.
2: That's pretty early. Yeah. It's also not the original house on the property. Right. Which is something that Andrea alludes to in her interview with Jim Harold. again, was how there was an original structure that uh, Kenyon had actually torn down due to its being dangerous, but the cellar was still there, and she remarked how that was a place of very high activity, the cellar from the original property that was on there.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, Jim in the interview goes on to ask her, like, how many types of spirits or how many spirits were there? How many types of different spirits does she think were in the house? And Andrea said a multitude, at least 12. And there's one that watched over us. I think there was two that she said were probably malevolent and then just a host of others. So that place was was packed. So now that we've heard the move in day, which is right off the bat. And again, keep in mind, according to them, the activity did not start in the five and a half months it took to secure the house where they had visited many times. As soon as they took proper ownership of the house and started moving in, that's when this thing kind of zeroed in on them like, oh, you're the new owners. Well, we're focusing our attention on you now. And immediately stuff started happening and never
2: stopped. But Scott, let's hear about the characteristics of the house itself. Well, there was a lot of things that Andrea said about the house, which I thought was interesting. One thing was that it was large. For them, it was particularly large. And not just large because their house in Cumberland, where they had come from, was small, but because it was a large house. It had a lot of rooms. I think it had 14 rooms. It was very sprawled out. There wasn't upstairs. But the other thing that Carolyn described was that it was always cold, at least for her. It was frigid, Mm -hmm. even when it shouldn't be. Turned out later, that had to do with the comings and goings of various spirits. And some brought Mm -hmm. warmth, and some brought cold. And you'll hear about that in some of the stories that we're going to share tonight from the book. Carolyn frequently Mm -hmm. heard noises upstairs when nobody was home. She would hear people walking around. She would go up there with a frying pan or something as a weapon and and be like, (laughs) all the girls are either downstairs or at school or not here. And I'm hearing something very distinctly. It sounds like a person. She goes up, they're not there. But here's one of the things to remember about the upstairs. Supposedly, a family member committed suicide up there in the eaves. More on that Mm. in a little bit. It seems to treat light and sound in very strange, inconsistent ways. One of the things that Andrea says in the book, and I and I gather that she took this from Carolyn, but also from her own personal experience there, Carolyn being her mother, was that rooms seemed to swallow light. Light didn't seem to move through the house like it would in mm-hmm. a normal house. And the same kind of thing happened with sound. But the way that it happened with sound was inconsistent. They felt like it would change qualities when it came to how the sound spread throughout the house's walls. Sometimes everything would be muted and rooms would provide you with absolute privacy no matter the volume of your conversation. Nothing can be heard beyond a short distance. Other times, the smallest whisper would carry across large areas. Now, skeptics would say, well, it's just strange acoustics. Back then when you did construction, you didn't give any thought to the way the sound carried through a house. But these were not fixed descriptions. These weren't consistent behaviors. They would come and go. Sometimes it was quiet. Sometimes it was loud. It varied. It was as if the house... Like each of the doors had its own personality. And when I say that about the doors in the house, one of the things that I loved about the way Andrea wrote this in volume one of her book was how each door had a behavior, almost in quotes. Mm. The doors had their own personalities. This door would unlatch and open even if furniture was in front of it. This other door would just rattle this door would never open but beings would pass through it there were they all had personalities so they got to a point where all these girls and the families living in there it's like oh this door that's what it thinks it's like you have a bunch of pets the doors are pets i, I was like i love the way that that was described because they had a door mm-hmm. to their pantry that would open over and over and roger was uh in disbelief about it at one point they put a desk in front of it and it would push the desk away these are things <laughs> wow. that are not really in the movie. I mean, there's a little discussion about this. Yeah. But then when the pantry would come open and there would be a smell of death that would come out. And there yeah. were some of the girls that would refuse to go into the pantry. So these are all things that are happening. The light is weird. The sound is weird. The doors mm-hmm. all have personalities of behavior. The animals won't pass through certain hallways. The cat won't go down this hallway. The dog won't come through the front door. And this is a a new dog they had that was a German shepherd mix. I get all the animals mixed up, but there were still Mm. animals at this home. Eventually they did have animals out in the barn too. I think it was the cat that actually wouldn't come through the front door when they first got there. Eventually they got it to come into the house. But then when it was in the house, it never got relaxed like it did in Cumberland, which is crazy because of all the crazy things that happened to the cats in Cumberland, including one being killed. This cat didn't like the house in the country. It would uh, walk into rooms, it would hiss at nothing and its ears would get pointed back. It would only sit high up on the furniture and it would eventually sleep with the family, but only tucked under the covers. It was very defensive (laughs) all the time. And this brings me to a point It's like that I wanted to make about Andrea's book. I, I don't feel like she's not being honest. I don't feel like this story isn't mm-hmm. true. But by the same token, there's some cases where they chalk up things that might be natural behavior to the supernatural, which I don't know how you right. couldn't if you were in this house. Because I'll tell you what, I have moved cats a thousand times. And when a cat moves, and I've heard about this from vets and all these people, it's the equivalent of a nervous breakdown for them because they're so <laughs> territorial. It's like yeah. that much of a thing. They get really freaked out. So for a cat to act weird after you move, With it, that's not unusual. But for a cat to hiss at things that aren't there in an empty room or never get relaxed, that's a little bit stranger. And the dog they had, the German Shepherd mix, I I now remember its name was uh, Jennifer Rebecca. (laughs) something the girls (laughs) I named it, I guess. It absolutely Mm -hmm. refused to uh, go through the front hallway of the house. Not Mm -hmm. even for, at one point, Roger put a fresh steak down on the floor, (laughs) I think. That dog would not come through that hallway. Yeah. There's a point at which even with all this freaky stuff happening, rather than leaving this place, there were a lot of things that they loved about it. And there was a point at which they got used to the personalities of all this stuff, but there's something to consider here. There's a difference in the malevolence of the personalities that the different folks in the family are dealing with. It's scary, it's weird, I don't understand It's different from it's scary, it's weird, I don't understand it, and it's trying to kill me. And different people are experiencing different things. For instance, and this is something you've heard of before with hauntings, small objects disappearing, precious objects disappearing. And there's a whole section in the book that talks about how, oh, you took my sweater or whatever. And you would expect all this with siblings. You took my sweater and you took this and you took that. And it's like, that sweater doesn't even fit me. And then they would find it stuffed down behind the headboard of a bed in the other girl's room. And it's like, I don't even like that sweater These things were happening all the time, and at one point, Roger had come home from being on the road from one of his sales trips, and he he walked through a room, and he had these nail clippers, and he put them down on the corner of a sideboard or a dresser or something, walked into the kitchen, came right back out, and they weren't there, and he Hmm. got livid. Now, keep in mind, this was after dealing with a whole lot of other things about the house. And he comes back and he's like, where are the nail clippers? And he's, he becomes uh, very angry and he's, he's yelling at the family and they're like, we didn't take them. And finally, I I can't remember which daughter it was. I think it, maybe it was Nancy or, or one of them, Uh, but she got real defensive and said, look, dad, this happens to all of us all the time. We don't blame each other. That's just the way it is in this house. (laughs) Yeah. It appeared to kind of bring him, reel him back in. It was one of those moments where he had to like dial back the denial and say, oh, okay, there is something going on here and, and I'm sorry that sort of thing. Yeah. So, that, And that's yeah. how Andrea just describes it in the book. There's another story that happened very early on that Mr. Kenyon talked about when they bought the house that in the early 1800s, apparently two men were walking through the area on their way from Webster, Massachusetts to Harrisville, where the house was. And they got caught in whiteout conditions, a blinding blizzard. Trying to find shelter, they went into a blacksmith shop at the front of what is now the Perone property. The shop was long gone by the time they bought it, but it, it used to be on the one of the front corner of the lot, I guess. They crawled into the blacksmith shop but wound up freezing to death, but it, no one knew they even had gone in there. They were likely very nearly frozen solid because they weren't even found until a very long spring thaw came around later and folks noticed the foul odor of them decomposing. Yeah. Mm. So there's – okay, well, it, that's an untimely death. It's out there on the edge of the property. Could that have something to do with it? Uh, In another story, the the youngest girl in the family, April, was taking a nap. Carolyn felt something in the home, a presence, uh, something dark that made her feel nauseous. She let her head rest a moment, trying to wait for it to go away, waiting for it to pass, and it did. And then when she popped her head back up, she realized she'd been asleep or something else for a long time. She couldn't be sure how long, but the hot cup of coffee that she had poured was now ice cold, and so was the room she was in. Then she looked up at the clock on the wall, and it had stopped two hours ago. Now, this clock, this was an heirloom clock. It's actually referred to in the movie The Conjuring, the very first one. And you see Mm -hmm. it there. It's it's hanging on the wall. They talk about it stopping at certain times. But the Barone family's account of it was that it did stop. It would just simply stop moving. It was a pendulum clock, presumably the kind you would wind periodically, and the weights descend slowly over time as the clock makes its movements. They'd never had an issue with it, but once they got to the farmhouse, it stopped working correctly. Roger even moved it from one wall to another, and it still wouldn't work right. He thought maybe uneven walls were stalling it out somehow. In fact, this clock and the experiences in the house seemed to belie some kind of bending of the rules when it came to how time worked there in general. Carolyn had a wide variety of missing time incidents in the house. The clock would also after having the pendulum stop, spontaneously start working again, which would require someone or something to reach up and swing the pendulum manually to get it going. It became so unreliable that they simply stopped messing with it. They just let it do what it wanted, which seemed to be the course of action for a lot of the physical world anomalies in the house. After the family finally left the house and relocated to another state entirely, the clock went back to functioning completely normally. But in this particular case, the room April was sleeping in had now gotten very cold, too. So Carolyn took an extra blanket in and put it on her. She knew the other girls would be home soon, having lost two hours, and when they got there, she promised them that she would give them some treats if they would just stay quiet until April woke up. Not too long after that, April came into the room and angrily said, "'Who shook me like that?' "'Someone or something.' had shaken her awake, and all of Carolyn's other girls, the only other people in the house, had all been right in front of her when it happened.
1: Okay, first question. Did she say what time the clock stopped at? Because I believe in the movie, and we saw this a few nights ago uh, now, so I don't remember exactly, but it was uh, not your classic 3.33 a.m., or just 3 a.m. on the dot, it was like a 311. I'm not sure if the number itself had any significance. I think maybe it did in the story. And yeah, I, and I don't I know. It. This
2: is the thing. It doesn't get mentioned in the book that I can okay. remember. A specific time doesn't get mentioned. Um, that may be a perspective issue. It could be that when they wrote the film, they might have had the benefit of drawing on all three volumes of Andrea's book. Right. Actually, no, right. but I think the film came out before she finished those. Yeah, because that was 2013. So they might have had to draw that information from somewhere else. But my impression was mm. just that the clock would randomly stop and start. And it felt to me, and this is something I wanted to talk briefly with you about, was it felt a little bit like there was a missing time scenario going on here. When I skimmed, I did get that impression
1: that it wasn't just something physically stopping the hands of the clock. It may have been a manipulation of time itself.
2: Yes, exactly. And that's one of the things that Andrea Perone speculates very well on in, in a very deft way in the book, was the idea that these beings that were in the house not only were they not necessarily connected to time or aware of time but when they were there you became mm-hmm. disconnected from time and that yeah. was something i thought was really fascinating it was it was almost as in you're you're in a suspended state of animation not in terms of your personal behavior but in terms of relative to the timeline of our of the world that we know and i thought that was yeah. really fascinating and these clocks kind of supported that and Andrea would frequently go to sleep or pass out or go somewhere and come back, and in hours and passed, the drink's cold, the room is cold, although rooms would get cold suddenly and warm sure. again. If, mm-hmm. the, if if a good spirit came by, it might warm up a little bit, like Manny.
3: Mm.
2: You think back, getting back to the quantum physics and all those things, yeah. words yeah. that we throw around and don't really understand, but getting back to <laughs> a time being a fabric and the idea that maybe when this being is present, the time is bending or warping or slowing down around the being. And then you're yeah. getting sucked into that. It's fascinating when you think about the experiences that they had in this house.
1: Yeah, they are the, the ballpoint pen tip or the pencil tip poking through the dimensional pieces of paper. And when you do that with the pencil tip, you're bringing some carbon in. You're opening up a little door. And other people have... Uh, we, we've talked about that principle before. Rooms getting cold when certain spirits uh, show up. And it's not because they're evil and evil is cold, Hell is hot, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) there's all different. Sometimes it brings fire. Some of the evil demonic kind of things set things on fire. So you can't attribute a temperature perhaps to one or the other, but it may be just a phenomenon that occurs if you believe in ghosts that when they show up, they're opening up a little uh, patch of the space-time continuum and space is cold, isn't it? They're bringing something in with them by just being there. And right. part of that affects temperature. And somebody explained it much better. Uh, I can't remember if it's an email to us a few years ago, but they explained the theory much better than I'm doing now. But basically, yes, that's what's happening is that there is an idea that in their realm, they are bringing that with them and it affects temperature when they when they show up. And the other thing I wanted to mention, I, we mentioned this before, of course, I'm just reminding people, uh, because we do get questions about what's the significance of, of 3 a.m. and 3.33 a.m. and this and that. And uh, One small tidbit about that, a preacher was on my subchannels uh, near PBS, and I was flipping channels, and he said something uh, that was curious, that the time for spirits, that 3 a.m. to 3.30 or 3.33 a.m., it was also historically, in Jesus' time, the fourth watch of the night, when they would commence with prayer during the night. So the shepherds around that time, three o'clock was the fourth watch. That's also why it's significant. And that's when the demons come out to play. As Peter James said, when we did our Sally house, you know, his classic thing is why is night more active? And he said, well, the, the nighttime is their daytime. That's when they come out. But I thought you don't have to be a freaky deaky spirit to only come out at night as i was driving home there were some very strange people on the street yes <laughs> and 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 talk about emergency rooms overnight and people who work the night shift especially in first responder positions how weird things get especially on full moons and i'm sure people are going to send us articles like well that that actually never happened that's not a true correlation of weirder stuff happening on full moons but if you talk to your first responders and your er nurses and people who receive people uh in emergencies, I'm sure they will, a lot of them will have an, uh, an idea that the nighttime gets pretty weird. The case in here is that weird stuff's happening during the day and broad daylight as well. It's happening all the time. That's right. Yeah. So there's something special about this space, about this house, where the activity is very high all the time in different phases And there's a handful of different types of entities here.
2: Well, speaking of which, here's a story that did take place in the daytime. It actually took place in the morning while the kids were getting ready to go to school. And this story happened to Cynthia or Cindy, they called her. And Cindy is interesting. In the book, she described this thing called the bubble, in quotes. Mm -hmm. And the bubble was like this feeling that they had – when these events were happening, it wasn't just her, it was other people in the family too. It felt like time was on hold, she said, and there was an mm. icy tingle, and that everything is at once. And I love that. So like there's some very specific temporal experience. But take a listen to this story from Cynthia or Cindy in Andrea Perone's book, House of Darkness, House of Light, The True Story, Volume One, Pages 73 to 75, published by Author House from the Kindle edition. Cynthia
1: was the first to make contact, physical with metaphysical contact. The school bus had arrived. She was not ready to go. Her books were stacked in a pile in Andrea's bedroom stairwell, clear on the other side of the house, right where she'd left them on her way down for breakfast. All of her sisters were leaving as she rushed through the kitchen, into the hallway, her mind focused on one thing, books. Their driver was beeping the horn. Let's go! Cynthia wasn't thinking about a spooky feeling she'd often had in that hallway, running far too quickly to care at the time. Perhaps that fact is precisely what left her vulnerable to attack, open to this encounter, as her defenses wore down, virtually non existent in the panic of that moment. As she stepped across the threshold of the kitchen door, Cindy was intercepted by a silky, smoky figure emerging through the cellar door. It placed itself directly in her path. There was no time to stop, no time to react. She'd inadvertently body-slammed the intruder. As she did so, it disappeared, vaporizing instantly. The apparition was indistinguishable, more a mass than an actual form. At point of impact, Its intense odor and frigidity all but halted her momentum, knocking her back in her tracks. She breathed it deeply into her lungs with a gasp of frozen air. This sudden, foul influx caused her body to lurch into spasms, coughing convulsively, propelling the girl forward with violent jolts, a reflex reaction. It had literally stopped her cold. As her sisters boarded the bus, their driver waited less impatiently, reassured that Cindy was on her way. She'd finally made it to the bus stop, but her mother was picking her up from school within the hour. What happened adversely affected the youngster in a way she could not recognize as the cause. The normally boundless energy of an eight-year-old had been depleted, her sprint rudely interrupted, abruptly and inexplicably by something wicked. When Cynthia fell asleep at her desk, the teacher called the nurse, Carolyn put her into bed and there the child remained, sleeping for the next two days and straight through the night. Nobody suspected anything more sinister than the onset of a cold. In a way, that's exactly what it was. It took time for her to fully recover from a contact which occurred between mortal and immortal one chilly winter morning. This metaphysical intermingling, though brief, effectively robbed the child of her life force, It required an inordinate amount of time to replenish. Cindy didn't have a virus or a cold. She had an encounter. Contact was made. It was what they did and how they did it, how they could and would usurp, then divert a form of energy for their own nefarious purposes. They took whatever they wanted from whatever source was available, so to manifest as form.
2: So that's one of the things that happened to her. It's a crazy story. Let's come back now. She, she passed through an apparition in that story. She actually collided with a full-floating apparition, uh, to quote Ghostbusters. But there were other <laughs> objects in the house that were actually physical, and this was an infestation of flies. And this uh, started out with just be a few flies here and there, and then there would be more and more, and they would pester everyone in the house, but they particularly went after Roger. Carolyn's husband and uh, the kid's dad. And Roger became obsessed. He had started putting up fly swatters in every room. He began ignoring the family. It became a tactical war. And he would do what Andrea called, quote, get up with the flies, end quote, (laughs) early in the morning so that he could attack them and kill them. And and they seemed to line up for attacks, almost as if they were uh, coordinated by some kind of military. Oh boy. Carolyn and Roger, they would call exterminators. No origins could be found. On top of this, they would be in the house in the dead of the most oppressive Northeastern winter you could imagine. When most flies aren't even around, these just kept coming. They had the ceiling checked. they had the basement checked. the exterminator sprayed everywhere, there was no origin, and the supply seemed to be endless. Well, eventually Roger hung up flypaper and that started to catch them, and for those of you who don't know what flypaper is, it's like long rolls of paper with sticky goo on it, and when they would buzz near it, they get caught. And then they have this long, slow, grotesque death, and also on top of that it smells. And during the time that all this is going on, which is is taking place over several weeks, maybe months, Roger is becoming increasingly disconnected from his family and obsessed with killing the flies. And this is one of the things that you see in these cases, something driving a wedge between the relationships and the family and people going to a dark obsession of some kind. Sometimes the flies would all suddenly vanish. And there would be no explanation for it.
1: Flies are almost cliche, not because people have gotten it from movies, but I believe movies have taken it from these instances. Amityville, and, and now we have the Arnold House, the Arnold Estate, and it is a connector to something disgusting, isn't it? Flies, excrement, the smell of death.
2: garbage, death. Trash, yes, dead Ugly, bodies. Ugly,
1: dark things, ugly, dark things. And what is it doing here? It's driving a guy nutty who doesn't believe in any of this, right. but it is something tangible you can chase after. And it's just funny that, uh, back when I was in college and my, my good friend, uh, and roommate Mark at the time. I think I had a rolled up newspaper and I was trying to get at this fly, this massive fly buzzing around. And he goes, man, you're just like my dad when he gets on one of these benders and he's got the golf magazine and he's going nuts. And he's, you know, eventually he's chasing them from room to room. And it's like, dad, just open the window. It'll go out. Like, no, no, no. I got to get this thing. And also it's not making any sense because they're coming out of nowhere and also disappearing into nothing. Yeah. It defies rational explanation, which also makes him further baddie about it. Yeah. And then he's got to stop this because if he can, then he's conquered this abnormality. You see these things pop up as memes and tropes and old
2: chestnuts because people have reported seeing them. It has to start somewhere the stories always have a seed, which is what we said in the cold open. Yeah. Well, let's get on to another story here. At one point, Andrea, the author of the book, was teaching all the girls at home. They had a very nice slate blackboard, and the girls would sometimes like to play school even after they came home. The chalkboard was large and heavy, had an oak frame, and it rotated in the middle like good old-fashioned chalkboard should, and Andrea would use it to put lessons up for everyone. But there was a problem Firstly, because of the strange things that would happen in the house, none of the girls wanted to go off alone to do anything. So if one went to the bathroom or for a snack, they all did. The only thing was when they would do this, they would come back and the chalkboard would be smeared or partially erased or sometimes even wiped completely clean as if with a wet cloth. Andrea, undaunted, thought, well, maybe if we get this out of the house, away from where everything happens, it'll be safe. Maybe it won't get messed with. So she convinced her dad to help her move it out to the woodshed. It was heavy, and this was difficult to do, negotiating the stairs and all that, but they did it. They took it out to the woodshed, which had a huge door. They heaved open and brought it inside. Seemed like a better deal all the way around for everyone. They could leave that door open and get sunlight when they were doing the lessons. And the trick stopped. Until after a few days, when the girls all went inside for a snack, and when they returned to the woodshed, the chalkboard was again smudged and rotated to a 90-degree angle so that the front of it was facing the ground. She was very frustrated. She gave up. After gathering herself for a few days, they made a new rule that at least one person would always stay back with it after that, and that worked for a while. Then one day, their dad, Roger, went out to gather up the trash from the woodshed and take it to the dump, which is something he had to do every two weeks. When he entered the shed, he was stunned. She called Andrea out there. Listen to this excerpt from page 98 of House of Darkness, House of Light. When she entered through the door of the summer kitchen, Andrea gasped. Her father was staring at the mass of wood and slate smashed to pieces in a pile on the lower level of their woodshed. She ran down the stairs, touching fragments of slate shattered like glass. Its spindles snapped off at the base. Its solid oak frame splintered into kindling. There was nothing left to salvage. Roger was as stunned as she by the shocking sight. A loss sustained. He did not accuse anyone of anything. It was obvious none of the girls would have or could have destroyed the object. None of them were even capable of lifting the chalkboard, let alone heaving it the 20 feet it had traveled. An act as malicious as it was mysterious. He knelt beside his daughter, warning her away from hazardous shards, carefully placing each fractured piece inside a paper bag for a safe disposal. Her heart was as broken as their chalkboard.
1: Was there anything that you know of that was written on the chalkboard?
2: No, I didn't, I didn't see Andrea say anything about that in the book. Doesn't mean it wasn't there, but you know, the other thing is a lot of these experiences are experiences that kids are having. They're very young kids, you know, so they might not have even thought to look for that. Like if they came down, the first thing the kid's going to think is the lesson's been wiped. It's smeared. I was doing my play lesson or real lesson or however what, because, you know, in the book, Andrea describes it and she's the author and she was also the teacher in this case Mm -hmm. in in these Mm -hmm. little classes as, as her own Head Start program, you know? So they probably (laughs) were focused. Focusing on real things and all she could see is that what she wanted to be there wasn't there anymore she might not have thought to look on the chalkboard for symbols or writing or yeah or whatever else but that's a very interesting question and if we get in touch with her i think that should go on the list uh something to ask her whether it's in time for this series or, yeah. or down the road so you know one of the points a lot of people
1: think when they interact with spirits from the other side, is that it's an attempt at communication. It's not just pulling pranks, although that's fun. (laughs) I would certainly do that if I was a spirit, just small ones. I don't want to, you know, scare anybody too horribly, but fun things, you know. And uh, in some cases, though, there's an attempt at talking to the living because something is undone. Their murder has to be solved. Revenge has to take place. There's something important that this entity didn't get to do when they were in this existence, and so now they're trying to communicate, or they're just lonely. That's another aspect. So I do I do wonder about any messages, but what was it about the chalkboard itself, you think, that inspired its smashing?
2: It depends on whether or not the source of it is earthly or not. If it's unearthly, yeah. it's just pure, unadulterated evil. It's just Just, just destroying
3: stuff. just, it's just interference. Just, yeah, yeah. yeah
2: you know, getting in the way of something that they're trying to do. If it's earthly, it could have earthly feelings with it. It could be like, Mm -hmm. you're wasting your time. You should be farming. You should be doing X, Y, or Z. Don't All this book learning is stupid. You're right. As simple as something is, I hated school. Yeah, Yeah, I hated school or or girls shouldn't be in school. There's all kinds of things it might be if there's earthly concerns with it. But if there's not, it could just be pure evil. It could just be the idea of thwarting what this sweet girl is wanting to do is to teach her younger sisters things outside of school. That's something that I want to talk about in part two is the idea of like, what's behind this? A lot of people Mm -hmm. investigated this, including, of course, the Warrens famously. And I do have some questions about what, you know, were their conclusions correct or or were they not correct? Can we analyze them or do we just have to Mm -hmm. take them at face value?
1: One funny uh, idea I'll quickly bring up here. (laughs) It's a series and it's called Ghosts. A lot of people have been turning on to this. I think it's even won uh, perhaps some British awards. I don't know if a BAFTA or, or uh, their equivalent, but it's pretty well done. And it's a British comedy with a, with a great cast. What's funny about this is that some of the ghosts who haunt this old manor have different skills. There's different things that they can do. <laughs> There's a, the ghost of a caveman. I, I think his name is Robin, and he can affect electricity and lights a little bit. Uh, this other one is a, a, a an MP who passed away at an inopportune moment. I'll just leave it at that. But his skill in the afterlife is that he can move things a little bit. Like if he he really struggles and tries, he can push down the key on a keyboard on a laptop. So he can type stuff. It just takes him a very long time and a lot of energy. And he's got to really focus
2: and strain. Going to quickly say, BAFTA or not, all of everything you've mentioned so far was in the movie Ghost with Patrick Swayze and Demi Moore. <laughs> a thousand years ago, the keyboard typing, the yeah. pushing the things around. So yeah. it's a little derivative, sounds like okay. it already, but I'm interested. I want to see it. I want to see it. This is what I'm saying is that all of these tropes are derivative in a
1: way because perhaps those are things that actually happen and people have wondered how do these things happen? yeah,, of course, a lot of people are taking their stories for whatever the reasons because they want attention or they they want the notoriety and they make up stuff based on things they've seen. That's what I was talking about earlier when we'll get a story about stuff, and it's like I, I think some of this might be true, and then some of this just seems a little bit outlandish and and too much. yeah, that's the the case that we've talked about this before. It's when you make up a story in the public and it's just like,. That those few other details, you got a little too far. It's a little too much. You've now turned the tide, and what you thought was like, I got this thing cinched up in the bag. People are going to love this story. You went a little too far because people who do encounter these things you know kind of the range of what's possible. This is what I'm getting at, Scott. The one character, Julian, the the passed away MP, he could do this, but it took a lot of energy, and 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 that's I think that character trait is based on. You know, when ghost say like, well, something moved, but it moved very slightly. Or remember in Poultry Guys, it's like, it was incredible. We watched this toy inch across in time-lapse footage yeah, about eight inches over six hours. And it's like, oh, and Craig T. Nelson's like, yeah, yeah, like, well, that's cool.
2: Take a look at my toy room. Yeah. He opens the door and things are flying around. That's what we have here. We have footage like that on our YouTube channel of the investigation at the Sally House where the football yeah. rolls across the floor. I mean, it's not like... The poltergeist scene, which is Hollywood. No, no, no. It is a ball rolling across the floor that nobody's touching.
1: Yeah, that's a little weird. Uh but then what I like, of course, is that people when they go to debunk that because I again I think they're like they're a little scared. When they see something like that and they they go to look for any explanation, as, as some of the comments are like, Look, look, she moved her foot right as the ball moved. Yeah. There's a fishing line there. Or that girl had a remote control for the blinds in her pocket. See, she reaches into her pocket, yeah. then the blinds flip. It's like it's like okay. Yeah, that's
2: it's a bit Hollywood. <laughs> you know, like yeah. they brought a, servo. a bit of uh, they know how to set up a servo, bring a servo, bring a power supply for it, hide the power supply and fool everyone.
1: And, and why aren't they, uh, why aren't they looking at the blinds? And, you know, it's just look it's every, everybody and they're, um, they're entitled to their speculations, but it's just kind of funny. There's some ploy here that they're all doing to uh, scare people by moving a, a football a few inches. And uh, there you go. Does that person scratched their nose and this happened. Getting back to the chalkboard is that that takes a lot of power. And energy. It's it's oak. It's a dense wood. Yeah. The
2: thing is, I can see this chalkboard I I know what these look like. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Of course. You know, not because. You know, in the 1970s, I don't know, I was around these chalkboards at some point. And they're and they're beautiful. The oak frame right. is polished oh, yeah, yeah. and stained and the board flips and it's and like they said it's slate. By the way, breaking slate is no easy task either. It came out in shards too. There's yeah. something uh, interesting about that if true. No one heard this whenever it happened? Yeah. They didn't hear the sound in the main house. And it right. it, it was like an explosion of very hard materials. It blew up in the woodshed, which is right there right next to the house. And no one heard it. So how did that work either? And that comes to that whole thing about time. Is time frozen? (laughs) Are you knocked out? Are there instances where you don't, you can't participate in what's going on around you because you've been incapacitated? That all
1: goes back to, again, consult the Astonishing Legends almanac of strange happenings. How do these things work? And it's the ghost and Mr. Chicken principle, or my favorite Martian, if you like, where the pliers are dancing through the air. (laughs) Like, and you asked, me once before, how do we know these things happen? Well, you go back to Skinwalker Ranch and the NIDS experiment and Tower 4, the video cameras with the BNC cables, tightly wrapped with zip ties and duct tape, all getting ripped out in an instant. And there were other cameras trained on Tower 4. So what we know is how did that happen? Well, we didn't see the duct tape getting slowly peeled back and a pair of wire cutters floating up through the sky to clip the BNC cables. It happened in an instant. But then how did that happen?
2: Yeah, it happened in like a 30th of a second. The frames were gone. And then on the video, it was continuous. And uh, the amount of time it took place for all the destruction to happen was uh, right, like a thirty, uh, which is a frame of uh, NTSC video, a thirtieth of a second or something like that. Yeah,
1: virtually and and uh, instantaneously yeah. for all intents and purposes. So my speculation here is that these things, like you said, if you walked in on the chalkboard being destroyed, it wouldn't be silently breaking apart and wood splintering and very quietly pieces of slate are being broken into shards and it being scattered and thrown about the room. My speculation is that it got smashed up pretty badly in an instant or very quickly in an incursion from another dimension.
2: And then it was just done. I'm with you. And then it was, it was just done. done. It happened yeah, it just so happened. quick the sound couldn't even travel in, in our reality. And if then it was that is over. possible.
1: Or the Perones just didn't like that chalkboard, so they smashed it up themselves
2: and blamed it on that to no one. It would just end up in a book 30 years later. I don't know who would do that. Well, this next story is one of the most intense stories in the book, and they're ramping up here as we get further I don't know. I'll just say when I read it, I I had to put the book down for a minute. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. Carolyn thought it might be a good thing to bring some animals to the farm, so she decided to go out and see if the barn might actually be able to house them. When she went in, as she looked around, she noticed something strange. Thirty feet up in the air, hanging delicately on the highest beam, was a hand scythe. She couldn't imagine how she hadn't noticed it, when Mr. Kenyon gave them a tour of the property back when they bought it, but there it was. She also noticed that the barn was unbelievably cold, at least at that moment. But then ever since she got to that house, Carolyn was always extremely cold, and today was no exception. Maybe this was just that. She was well bundled up in thick wool and cotton with a leather jacket over all of that, which it turns out might have saved her life. As she was about to leave the barn, she heard something that sounded maybe like birds fluttering up in the rafters. No, it it was more of a whooshing sound, according to Andrea on page 99. She turned around and looked up and saw the hand scythe spinning in the air over and over, refusing to succumb to gravity. It was hovering and rotating and chopping the air. Listen to what happened next. Suddenly, it plunged toward her. The woman was in grave danger. She watched. It flew precisely in her direction, yet, Carolyn could do nothing to rescue herself in the moment. She was frozen in place, unable to move her legs, incapable of stepping aside. A dangerous airborne device, weapon fixed on its intended target, vital to brace for impact. Carolyn recalls becoming instantly transfixed, mesmerized by the object as it approached. She was paralyzed, unable to retreat, though her mind was as provoked as her body, speaking to the subject of self-preservation. Trembling legs would not cooperate. Carolyn stood there, rigidly in place, watching the trajectory of the scythe. As it struck her slender form, its blade slicing hard across both her neck and shoulder. The violent force of a blow she expected was stunning nonetheless. There it lay, beside her boots, on frozen planks of wood, as still as the air. Its momentum stifled, its threatening tones silenced by the strike. Carolyn stared at the wayward tool as she slowly reached up to touch the wound, fearful of what she might find in its wake. It was then she'd realized the multiple layers of clothing she had worn as protection from cold morning air had proved to be a blessing in disguise nothing less significant than her salvation that bulky cumbersome outfit literally saved her life in spite of its accurate aim and high speed the strike of the scythe was unable to penetrate leather though it left quite a gash the jacket was destroyed but it was the scar it had left on a mind which would become troublesome Equally frightened as fascinated by this strange event, she stared at it in shock, then picked up the hand scythe, latching it onto a protruding nail nearby. First of all,
1: that ever so slightly freaked me out. Yeah. <laughs> this story, not well, because of the obvious, but also our family had a hand scythe that had a little hole in the blade. and As a kid, I used to hang that up on a nail. So anyway, that just kind of uh, rang true. I have a scythe here me. in the
2: other room. Yeah. I've taken pictures of it. I think I've posted them before. I'll, I'll post it again. By the way, it's in my attic near rafters. I mean, it's the same scenario. It's not a pie, Right. But it's in an undeveloped room with a high ceiling. Oh, I've
1: seen pictures of it, I bought it it in,
2: yeah, in Bucks County, Pennsylvania at an antique, which is famous for Antiquen, by the way. (laughs) If you're ever (laughs) into Antiquen, and I'm joking. Bucks County. Yeah. I have a uh, friend that had a band named Pants, and they had a song called Antiquen. And I remember the chorus was like, (laughs) Antiquen, this could take all weekend. Um, But um, (laughs) – And it it (laughs) does.
1: Yeah, uh, well. I probably
2: could get permission to play that on the, maybe I'll play that at the end of this show. No, play us out. Play yeah, us out with yeah, it. When yeah. the show's over, I think they'll let me do that. But anyway, my my point is this scythe is, uh, it's a scary device.
1: It's a formidable, scary piece of implement there. It's yeah. a long, curved blade with a handle meant for slicing, and like I said, if she saw a spinning rake, it's like, it's mm, yeah. weird, but yeah. <laughs> maybe I could get poked in the eye with it, but it was meant to be frightening. So, and of course, it reminds me of other things in uh, in movies. That's what I'm saying here. One thing that we're connecting is we're going to look at the relationship between a cinematic telling of this story and how that comes about and, and real events and how they tie in, as well as other media. So you could almost call it a comparative media study. I don't know if you've seen Hereditary.
2: No, I haven't, actually.
1: It reminded me, I'll just say, of a scene towards the end uh, the people who are horror fans that have seen it uh, will well know it's uh, pretty famous or infamous now. When we talk about things flying at people, early on we've discussed this topic. People say like, well, if it's an evil spirit, why isn't an a knife fly out of the kitchen drawer and just fly across the room and stab somebody in the eye? It's like, well, I've never heard of that happening And there may be a reason that that cannot fully happen. However, knives can be thrown at people, it seems. There's plenty of anecdotes about that. Flying past people, people ducking right at the right moment to to avoid catastrophe, people being scratched. We saw Tony Pickman get scratched. He got scratched on TV, on on sightings. It appeared on camera, unless you think they're all in on it. You can be scratched, but in the cases we've heard, it's not like a farm implant can fly off the wall and s- sever your head.
2: Yeah, but in this case, if Carolyn hadn't been wearing what she was wearing, she might have She might have been fatally injured. And, and so she
1: was cut a little bit, I think, or
2: the, the jacket was cut, she right? She was severely bruised. The clothes right. prevented the penetration of the blade into her skin. Can certain things be allowed? Certain actions up to
1: a point? But it's not like the thing flew off right and, and, uh, and you know, stabbed her in the
2: heart. Force, correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like you're calling back to an ancient trope <laughs> of tropes on Astonishing <laughs> Legends that we, yeah. would, would, that we would fall back on called the rules and your rules. And the rules, uh, and, and not necessarily your rules, but the idea right. that X, Y, and Z can't happen because it's not allowed for whatever reason. They're they're not the rules. They're 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 more like the observations. Hell well, best. okay, the observations. Cuz here's my question about this is like if you do get killed by something paranormal mm-hmm. and then the police come to investigate it, how often do they even remotely consider that it was a paranormal death? They don't. They say it's unsolved right. or we can't find the person that did it. So right. you wouldn't necessarily know if the blade that came down was wielded by an unseen force, because the yeah. cops are never going to be like unseen force, blah blah blah, blah. <laughs> except for <laughs> right. in Russia and Dyatlov Pass, unknown compelling yeah. force. That's my question to you. It's like I I, I don't know, I don't know. I'm on the, I'm I, on the fence about it, because this was a direct assault. Was it gentle or did it plan mm-hmm. it because she had protective clothing on?
1: I don't know. Most times, if the cops show up and there's a, a giant butcher knife sticking out of somebody, they usually put two and two together and solve the case. It's not like this person was in a bank vault that was locked up and suddenly they stabbed themselves in the, no, in the back of the No, I disagree with this
2: point. I disagree well, with Well, no, this point. No, not to, no, hold on, hold on. Hold on a second. Cases.
1: Hold on a second. Yeah. Let me finish. Okay. There definitely could very well be cases that there may have been more than that of an incursion. Let me let me point to this case that's famous that we covered ourselves. The Bell Witch herself was thought to have put the poison in John Bell Sr.'s path or on his nightstand where he accidentally took it, or somehow it got into what he was drinking and eating, and she effectively poisoned him. Now, that was also a case of a spirit that could make loud raps, knocks. Was omniscient, could move things, could uh, well. The, remember one, uh, one, of my one guy stories. tried to, to try to wrap her up, yeah, throw in the fire, and it got so heavy as he stepped towards the fire, and so horribly stinky that he had to drop it. But it had the power, if you believe it. And, I, and again, wow, what a great scene! I guess that guy got that from some 1840s movie.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh, right which predates movies yes well but or or he just got a very vivid imagination and again it's good sci-fi it's good uh horror writing stephen king would applaud it's such a weird thing to describe an instance but this thing had power so what i'm saying is that if it hated john bell senior so much as everybody in the family said do it it did and it took a liking to betsy bell
2: Wait, what year was what year was that again you said? The fireplace thing, do you know?
1: Andrew Jackson visited, so that would be in the uh the 1820s to 18 18- Okay. 30s, right? so, so, yeah, I just, so
2: I think they were the 1890, 1819, to 1821, sometime around there. Okay. Yeah. This gives me a chance to call back to one of my favorite facts that I learned in film school. One of the very first uh, films in history that was copyrighted anyway was a movie called Fred Ott's Sneeze. This is Edison's uh, kinetoscopic <laughs> uh-huh. record of a sneeze. It's a guy sneezing. I'm reading the right. uh, Wikipedia page. Uh, but that's an 1894 Short film. Okay. uh, Shot by uh, the very famous William K. L. Dixon. Not famous these days, but in uh, film history classes he is. So it stars Fred Ott and he sneezes. It's only about five seconds long. Anyway, I don't think predating this 1894 short film, there weren't any movies of demons being covered in blankets and thrown into fires to borrow from. Mm, But uh, maybe it appeared in a book and that's where the guy got
1: it, obviously, because
2: that stuff can't
1: happen, right? right. So it's a case where as uh, our good friends over at Small Town Monsters and Seth Breedlove would would say in their talking points about the documentary, which was uh, really great, and also it's uh, it's awesome because I'm in it, <laughs> this is the first case, perhaps, of a spirit committing murder, it was thought, like, directly. So here's what you usually hear. They don't uh, fire missiles at you of of all types or point a gun at you and pull the trigger. They wear you down, and they wear you down, and they break up your family, the things you love, your human connections. They break you down mentally, emotionally. They make you obsessed
2: with killing flies to the point where you're ignoring your entire family, all the while arguing against anything supernatural happening.
1: Yeah, because flies aren't supernatural, right? It's not weird that I spend every waking moment from the time I get up early in the morning to catch them sleeping, to chase them all day and plot their demise in a large group so I can win this battle. Imagine if he was alone, like a hermit, and that went unchecked. He'd be a, a stark raving lunatic after a few years. Yeah. Usually the M.O. with this, if you believe this stuff, is that it it wears you down in ways or, as I've come to firmly believe, drives people to... Commit mass murder. That's just me, folks. But some people in the way that they talk, especially afterwards, Scott and I were just talking about this and and uh, the remorse they seem to show in court. It's like, oh, now you're sad. You thought about this for weeks. You thought about this for hours before you did it that day. And you thought like, well, should I do this? I don't know. Like, yeah, I should. Yeah, this sounds like a good idea. This right. is going to ruin my life and the and the lives of hundreds of other people that knew these people. And they do it anyway, and then afterwards they're they're all hang dog in the courthouse, and then there's other people who uh, they get arrested and they do it and they got that strange sickly smile. So what's going on there? Are they legally insane? Well, not by the court in a lot of cases, and not by experts. They're just kind of bad folks that did a very bad thing, right? So you wonder how these people are getting worked on. And usually what happens, uh, I've talked about this in other episodes, is that it usually starts from a seed of hate. You see a lot of these guys who go through, it's a custody battle. He's going through a divorce. He's lost everything. It's somebody who fixates on some other group and he hates them and hate festers and dwells and from a small mustard seed grows into mass murder or just something really awful. But it's usually something, it's like a perceived slight. It's like, well, I'll show you guys. And then that thought grows and you dwell on it and you obsess with it. And pretty soon now you're battling a hundred flies every day. And uh, you never thought you would. Doesn't make sense to you, but you know, you got to kill them what's going on here. But what I'm saying is that that's the way that that seems to work in a lot of cases that we know. But I agree with you. There could be a lot of cases where people just die in their sleep and were they being choked by a a shadow person, the old hag at the end of the bed, some horrible specter.
2: We don't know. The old hag sits on your chest.
1: It could stare at you at the end of the bed. (laughs) A, A good friend of mine said something was at the end of the bed grabbing her toes and she could see the blankets moving. Yeah. Above her toes. So... Yeah, this is somebody I trust. And it's like, well, I don't know. There's got to be an explanation for that. It's not uh, the Bell Witch. But getting back to this point here is that I believe that's usually as powerful as these things are, that's how they work at you, little by little. It's the death of a thousand cuts because it's a lot more satisfying than like, I just made a giant gargoyle (laughs) sculpture fall on your head from the top of the castle. That might be fun for them too, but to torment somebody for years, and the operative word is torment and slow destruction. It's a dish best served cold.
0: Forest and Scott, thank you for supporting their sponsors. I'm Bree. Now, back to the show.
2: I don't know if you remember in Titans... Which uh, our good friend Rich Haddam is working on, but in in there's a case in that where Raven actually gets a gargoyle to not only come down and attack the aggressor, but follow <laughs> it and eventually kill it. So that's pretty.
1: Oh great. Yeah. yes, that was uh, <laughs> yeah, that was scary and a little bit gruesome. But yeah, uh, well but, that's but what cool, I love about
2: right? Raven. She can't quite control that evil power, but in her well, heart that, she's that, good. The, but in her yeah. heart she's good. Yeah. But so. again, if
1: you look at the cinematic offerings from some of these tales or what they're based on, yes, of course it's got to be dramatic. So. But what Andrea was talking about in the comparison of the movie, and again, she really loved the movie, Mm -hmm. but what she would say about it is the experiences that actually happened maybe wouldn't translate in film, and also it would be just too freaky and terrifying, but again, she lived through it. But as she also says, for her and her sisters, they handled it pretty well. It was a great time in Andrea's life because it was interesting and a glimpse into the bigger workings of the universe and and the afterlife for her anyway so it was a it was a great lesson aside from the chalkboard getting destroyed everybody took it slightly differently because it is very subjective uh, for their mom as i said before she felt under attack because she was
2: well there's another story here i want to share a very short one and then we're going to go to the last most intense story tonight before we wrap up this episode This one took place when Carolyn was home, the mom of the family, and she was in the shower when a neighbor, Miss Pettigrew, the mother of five boys, stopped by with a freshly baked cake for the Perron family. Uh, Andrea had let her in and went to tell her mom that they had company. Miss Pettigrew knew that Roger was out of town, so she thought she'd bring it over to help Carolyn out. And as Carolyn got out of the shower in the next room, she took off her bathrobe to get dressed for their visitor when a large coat hanger lifted itself off a rack next to her and began striking her repeatedly on her head and neck. In the exact same place, the scythe had injured her a few weeks earlier. She screamed and everyone in the house came running into the room where she was dressing and they all saw it beating her before it fell to the floor. Carolyn went into shock. The neighbor, Mrs. Pettigrew, waited to make sure she was okay before, quote, politely excusing herself, end quote. But just before she left, she leaned into Carolyn and said, the Kenyans always kept the lights on overnight, all the lights every night.
1: So Roger never followed the lights on all night advice.
2: I didn't see anything about that in the book, which I was surprised by. Mm. Not too surprised because I don't think he shared it with the family. He wasn't as much of a believer or he was in strong denial about what was going Mm -hmm. on in the house. Which, And I get that. You bought a house. You bought this house. This is where we're going to live. Oh, it has all these problems. No, it doesn't. Dang it. It's fine. We're going to be fine. It's There's a fly. I'll swat the fly. Everything's going to be fine. I get that a little bit. I'm not... That much of a stick in the mud as he appears to be in the book, but like, especially given what you and I have studied over the years. Uh-huh. But by the same token, I get the idea of like, this thing, whatever, that I've spent a lot of time or emotional investment in that keeps breaking. It can't be broken. It's not broken. It's going to be okay. I'm going to keep fixing it until everything's right. I get that feeling. I guess that's my weakness, but um, <laughs> I don't know that he ever took to heart that message from Mr. Kenyon. Uh, Well, you know, leave the lights on all night. And now this message is coming directly to Carolyn. Right. They left the lights on all night, but at no point in volume one anyway, I have not read volume two and volume three, which is another eight or 900 pages worth of material, which I actually do want to consume. It's just a a commitment. (laughs)
3: Yeah. <laughs> but at no
2: point in volume one does she say, oh, we suddenly started leaving the lights on all night. That that didn't mm-hmm. happen, to answer your question.
1: A couple of uh, thoughts here that, well, one, I mean, just from a practical sense, <laughs> that that's going to be a big hit to your electric bill. What dad doesn't say like, you kids turn off the lights if you're not in there? Yeah. I heard that so much growing up. That's just what dads do. Yeah. It's like, close the refrigerator door. You're letting the the cold air out. You're going to air
2: condition the world. No, I mean, I I
1: am making a joke (laughs) here, but really it's like, to him, it's like, I'm not doing that. That's, you know, there's no reason to leave the lights on all night. The second point of that anecdote, though, is that now if you believe the lovely neighbor lady, Mrs. Pettigrew, and you believe
2: Mr. Kenyon... Who they loved. And I want to make that absolutely clear, by the way. I'm glad you said that. There's yeah. no ill will towards him. He's not portrayed as an evil yeah. character trying to pawn off a haunted house. It's something different. And it's interesting because he clearly had to move out and he wanted to sell it and he made sure they got the deal. And I think he felt like it was a good home for them. Right. But he also, at one point, and I, I, I don't think I mentioned this, at one point he checked in and, and he uh, he came back. And when I say checked in, it was not a phone call. He would come back and visit. And I think it, he said to Carolyn, is, is everything okay here? And that was it. Mm-hmm. That was as far as he went. And she was, at that time, I was like, oh, yeah, everything's fine. Yeah. Great. Why do you ask? Yeah. You know, it's like, well, just leave <laughs> the lights on. I'll see you later. <laughs> he wasn't trying to trick them. No. But he wanted them to be safe. But by the same token, he realized yeah. that, that that house had a sharp edge to it.
1: Yeah. Well, here's the paradox and the irony of that. Okay. So if you just bought this house from Mr. Kenyon and ghosts are humbug, totally. Yeah. A blot of mustard and underdone a bit of potato. What you're receiving is just a house. It can't be haunted. That's not real. That's all baloney. So Mr. Kenyon doesn't know that, which you believe in. If he were to tell you it's haunted, uh, you may just think he's a quack. I mean, you might believe him You might believe in ghosts and then not want to buy it. Sure, that's one angle. But take the rational angle is that he's not going to tell you it's loaded with ghosts. So be careful, folks. Leave the lights on. What it tells me is that he is taking into consideration their beliefs or their disbeliefs. But also he's experienced stuff, which also is that paradox of, well, you know, people say they were just making it up because after they moved out of the house, nothing ever happened again. So. That was all baloney. The Perones moved out. The house is fine. Nobody experienced anything. Well, you don't know, as she said, there were eight generations of families before them. Again, the house was completed forty years before the Revolutionary War. The Perone family was the first outside family to move in there. So you have Mr. Kenyon. I think as gingerly as he can saying like, well, you might want to just leave the lights on. But why is he saying that? Obviously, he's experienced something kind of creepy there and that worked for him. But he's not trying to influence them or scare them unduly because if they believe in it, it's going to freak them out. If they don't believe in it, then he's a wacko. So you can understand his position.
2: Well, it's interesting you should say that because one of the things that Mr. Kenyon did in that house was boarded up all the fireplaces. This was a central Mm. theme in the book. And Mm -hmm. it's one of the things that Andrea writes about. And this is one of those things that plays over to me saying, okay, is this part of the supernatural experience or is it something simpler or more mundane? Because he had boarded up the fireplaces – she unboarded one and then she started to become obsessed with the fire because she was so cold, mm. which made sense because the cold, I get the cold relating to the paranormal and the frigidity. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh my God, I'm freezing to death. And she would get near the fire. And at one point, she even passed out near the fireplace with her mm. feet almost in the flames. And Roger Oof. had to rescue her. And yeah. so there were definitely bad things happening with the fireplace. But Andrea suggests in the book that the fireplace, unboarding the fireplace, unleashed some kind of evil. But there wasn't necessarily a direct connection to that. So that that's one of those cases where I look at it and I say, oh, well, you know what? This is just an older gentleman who was like, well, the fireplaces are drafty. It's not warming the mm-hmm. house up. So I'm boarding them all up. I've been to a billion houses with boarded up fireplaces. Oh, my you grandfather know. did. Yeah, yeah they, <laughs> they did, did that. It, it drives it just, me nuts as a kid. Yeah, no, as a kid, you're like, oh my God, I want a fire. Everybody wants to build a fire. But like, especially when you're young, because it's great and it's destructive and amazing and also kind of trapped <laughs> and all that stuff. But like, so there's parts of this, and it's the same thing that I was kind of saying about Like, uh, And I'm not discounting her perspective, but I'm just saying whether or not the cat would go inside when you move to a new house, the fireplaces are boarded up. I think more things are connected to this haunting for the family than might actually be connected to the activity. But by the same token, I'm not discounting the realness of the activity at all Uh, because God only knows how you would perceive it if you Mm -hmm. lived it. But And this is one of the things about Mr. Kenyon, because you were just talking about him, I was just thinking about It's like everything he's doing is not some spiritual, I'm floating and I'm spooky, you know. (laughs) It's it's like, no, I boarded up the fireplace. A bunch of cold wind was coming down him in the winter, so I boarded them up. Yeah, right. That doesn't mean the house isn't haunted. Doesn't mean that at all. It just means in this time period, I'm an older guy. It's drafty. Mm -hmm. I'm boarding up the fireplace.
1: With the history of this house and the people that lived there before it, To me, that says that it's a known thing that stuff is going on, but he doesn't, you know, people don't talk about this stuff because of the comments you see in YouTube clips and uh, some of the emails we get and Reddit and all these other places where you're called out for being a kook. Yeah. You got to be careful about what you say. And especially, you know, look, this he seems like a, a nice older guy. He's trying to do a transaction. He doesn't want to sour the deal right off of the bat. And maybe nothing will happen to these people because perhaps he knows that it's also who's there. If somebody moved in afterwards and nothing ever happened, well, then it doesn't matter, does it? It doesn't matter how hot it is. If you never experience it, that happens quite a bit. So it's tied to the people, the place, The location, the time, there's a lot of factors as looping back to our earlier thought. There's a lot of things that uh, go
2: into a haunting, especially one like this. That's that complex. Well, this last story that we're going to share here in part one is one of the most intense stories in the book. But believe it or not, it's not the most intense story in the book. Mm. But you're going to think it is once you hear it. So let's listen to that now. One night, Carolyn
1: was home with Roger when she was awakened by footsteps coming into her room. Half asleep, she presumed it was one of her girls and reached out with her hand to try and comfort whichever child was out of bed. As she awoke further, she opened her eyes to a horrifying vision of a grotesque feminine figure floating over her. She was terrified beyond the point of rational action. Paralyzed with fear, it just floated there, staring, its head at an unnatural angle. It was obvious its neck was broken. As it floated closer to Carolyn, she tried to scream, but couldn't. She kicked Roger over and over, scraping his skin with her toenails, according to Perone's book. He still would not wake. Here's an excerpt from the encounter from page 184. It drew closer. One black stick of an arm flopped down across her pillow as the entity leaned over its head curiously cocked to one side, as if it was studying her. Terrified of being touched, Carolyn's first instinct was to hide, an inclination to cower beneath the quilt, though she had kicked her share of it too far beyond reach. Breaking backward, frantically scampering away, Carolyn catapulted up against the headboard of their bed, crashing it into wrought iron hardware on the doors directly behind it, loudly enough to wake dead and living alike. Eyes sought a face. There was no face. Only a swirling, rancid mass of rotting flesh resembling a desiccated hornet's nest, covered in what appeared to be a mesh of blackened cobwebs, flimsy wisps of wiry hair clinging to the crown. Grabbing a fistful of disheveled hair, Carolyn jerked Roger's head severely back and forth in her desperate attempt to wake the motionless man. His body was limp, lifeless. His wife was sick inside, certain her husband was dead. Uncontrollable panic ensued, believing the intruder had killed him and was about to claim her. An intention to stop her heart, to literally scare her to death. An evil entity stalking its prey began moving in for the kill. As a spontaneous reaction, she slammed her body up against the headboard. Sliding aside, she landed on Roger. Fighting for some distance fighting for her life. The woman's silent screams were deafening, her mind manufacturing at full volume what her body had refused to provide. The wretched being floating cloud-like above her, inches away, becoming a part of whatever was in its way, on its way to a target. Aversion so intense, its repulsive odor overwhelming, it caused her stomach to heave reflexively. Carolyn fought for control, taking shallow panting breaths, forcing out fine mist from her lips, obscuring the appalling view of what she presumed would be her bitter end. In those few dreadful moments, it never occurred to her that she might survive this ordeal. The ghastly apparition aligned its hellish head with the face of its intended victim. In the last instant before contact, Carolyn whispered the only word she could form or utter in a moment of pure panic. God help me. Gasping for air, grasping an edge of the covers with gnarled fingers trembling, she braced for impact. Yanking the blanket forward had caused it to shift, falling off of Roger, revealing his torso, the shocking sight momentarily diverting her rapt attention from the imposing apparition. She'd ceased breathing, her mind shrieking in horror. His back and shoulders, even his ribcage, was scored, deeply abraded with scratches as if he'd been clawed to death by a wild animal. Seeking out the entity, she knew she was next. It was gone. Proving to be a powerful prayer, no matter how quiet or brief, Carolyn saved herself with a faithful request of her Savior. Having had the presence of mind to invoke the presence of God in such a moment of crisis, murmuring words possessing potency enough to cause an intervention on her behalf. God help me, Vanquished the evil spirit, the menacing manifestation imposing itself upon her at dawn. During those stark moments spent awaiting her own pitiful demise, Carolyn could do nothing but hold her breath, clench her fists, and pray for salvation. A plea for tender
2: mercies. Following all of this, she checked to see if Roger was actually breathing and alive, and not only was he, he never really woke completely up. And on top of that, she could still smell the foul odor of death in the room. Listen to these notes that she gave on the experience.
1: The dress, rusty green jersey, handmade, hand-dyed fabric belt cinched at the waist, with an oval buckle covered in same fabric vintage clothing, a being from another time, ugly beehive head, a hornet's nest, broken neck, snapped, hanging to the side, No eyes. No mouth. Gray mesh. Cobwebs. No hands. No feet. Just floating above me. Cold. So cold. Can't breathe. Vile. Evil. Death. No bureau. Gone. Coming closer. Cold. Can't breathe. So close. Too close. Wants to touch me. Don't touch me. Head draped at an angle wants a kiss. Dear Lord,
2: oh my God. While well, it's clear this house was full of spiritual entities of a wide variety, some of them benevolent, like the female spirit who tucked the kids in at night and kissed their foreheads, smelling like flowers and fruit. That was a presence that they found comforting. There was also the presence of a young man, Johnny Arnold, a member of the Arnold family who committed suicide at the age of 56 by crawling into the inside area of the eaves of what was now the Perone House and and drinking horse liniment until he died. As Andrea said on Jim Harold's podcast, drinking horse liniment would have led to an excruciating death. He would have had to stay quiet while gasping for air and feeling like his insides were being torn apart as he lay dying in those eaves. However, after such a horrible death, the girls found his presence to be non-offensive. Somebody who was just quietly watching, hanging out. They, they sensed no animosity from him. Nor Manny, a spirit that young Nancy saw on the very day they moved in, watching Mr. Kenyon finish packing. Cindy had seen him too, and they all felt he was a kind, peaceful soul, watching over them in a way. They, they could feel a warmth when he was around that pervaded the frigid cold that would sometimes be a hallmark of other spirits in the home. But here's the thing. The cold didn't always mean the spirit was bad. Some of the good spirits came with a little bit of cold, as to your point earlier, and some of the Mm -hmm. other spirits came with warmth. Maybe the temperature isn't always indicative of the attitude. These particular spirits were all interactive, seemingly aware of the time and place and the fact that there were mortals in the home who might sense their presence. They weren't the only ones there, however. There were others who seemed frozen in time, trapped, or maybe reflections of the past, oblivious to modern-day activities on the property. What was the difference between spirits like that and spirits like Manny, whom they felt was practically a member of the family? Andrea joked on Jim Harold's show that they would sometimes set a place for him at the dinner table. That kind of thing in days of yore might have had you accused of witchcraft. Setting a place at the table for a ghost? Which brings us to one of the more prominent characters in the house, Bathsheba Sherman a notorious member of the Harrisville community with a reputation that followed her through the small village long after her death. What's in a name? Forrest, can you tell us a little bit about the name Bathsheba?
1: Well, according to the Hebrew Bible, Bathsheba was the wife of Uriah the Hittite and then later of King David, As the story goes, one day King David was on his roof of his palace and saw a very beautiful woman bathing and lusted after her and made inquiries as to who she was. He found out that she was the wife of one of his soldiers, Uriah. Well, King David eventually got Bathsheba pregnant, and in an effort to cover up his misdeed, he tried to convince Uriah to have sex with his wife, being Bathsheba. But Uriah refused to under the old ancient rules of men in battle and and sex with their wives. So he preferred to remain with the other troops at the palace. Well, having failed that, King David then decides, well, I know how to dispatch this. He has Uriah take a note to the general Joab, which would place Uriah at the front lines where he would most likely be killed. Uriah was then struck down, and after that, David married Bathsheba, and she gave birth to Solomon, who would become the famous king, and make her the queen mother, and King Solomon would succeed David as king. So okay. there you go. It's, uh, but they're both beautiful women, as described in this story and in the Bible, but I don't remember any characterizations of this Bathsheba from the Bible as being, as being cruel being but here, we certainly see Bathsheba Sherman as not being very well liked and not very nice to her help. This particular
2: Bathsheba had a bit of a mishap, if you can call it that, mm. with an infant that was left in her care. Details are sketchy, historically, but court records reveal that the baby that she was taken care of was found dead, killed by a sewing needle driven through the back of its head. Kind of hard to imagine that being an accident, but the justice system could not find enough evidence to convict Bathsheba of wrongdoing. So she walked free. Nor was she? According to an amateur town historian that Carolyn Perrone befriended, a Mr. McEachern, who was around 80 at the time she connected with him and old enough to have actually remembered Bathsheba from his childhood, Bathsheba was detested by everyone in town. She had a reputation for starving and beating those that worked for her. On page 324 of Andrea's book, House of Darkness, House of Light, The True Story, mm-hmm. Volume One, McEachern describes Sherman this way, quote, bitter, vindictive, hateful, and unholy. Only a few of the words he'd chosen to describe an evil woman. She was horrible to the help. He'd accused her of starving and beating the staff in her charge at Sherman Farm. Women folk of the village considered her a harlot. Menfolk leered the same way, except they did so with rapacious eyes. Bathsheba was a ravishing beauty in youth, but he claimed she sacrificed both due to choices she made in life. End quote. There were rumors that she sacrificed that poor child to the devil, but there's not a lot more documentation of what happened. Mekitrin also speculated that Bathsheba may not have even been buried in hallowed ground, a troubling idea to say the least. We know from history and stories we've covered in the past that women could be vilified for all the wrong reasons during these time periods, ostracized simply for being single or the slightest bit outside what was considered acceptable behavior. Maybe that was the case here, too. Or maybe it wasn't. Could it have been that Bathsheba Sherman was tormenting Carolyn so viciously? Well, I suppose we'll leave it at that tonight. No, we will not. Hold on a second there, sir. (sighs) (laughs) <laughs> dude it's like 3 a.m all right well hold on a second
1: i was just looking through our notes here and there's something i think you left out at the top of the show so, so here, just scroll to my cursor actually just click on my uh, uh picture here in the google docs okay.
2: Okay, okay i'm there I'm, there I'm there i'm there oh oh at the beginning yes. of the
1: story we were talking about the perone family and they got that little basenji dog and you had to explain to everybody what a basenji was and what's their characteristic yes. <laughs> Uh, they can't bark. Exactly. I right. guess
2: they can yodel, <laughs> which I never heard my family's dog yeah. do, but yes, yeah. they can't bark.
1: Yes. Okay, well, that beloved dog met with a pretty gruesome end. And as we've seen with this story, in various places that are connected and the people that are connected, a gruesome death sometimes occurs every once in a while here. Yes, it does. But let me ask you this what is the time frame, just to be clear for everybody and myself as well? Between getting that dog and them actually moving to the Arnold Estate farmhouse, how much time had passed?
2: Well, they got the dog way before they were even thinking about that. This was when they were still living in Cumberland, Rhode Island. They weren't even thinking about moving. It was before the house got broken into. It was before the cat got killed, the delinquent situation, Mm -hmm. uh, before the neighbor had the heart attack and drove into the stone at the end of the driveway. It was before all of that. It was months and months before that. Carolyn wasn't even thinking about trying to move at the point that they got that Basinji. Yeah,
1: that's what I thought. Because there's a reason I'm asking you here, and, and that's we didn't
2: actually mention the dog's name, did we? No, I could have sworn I had it in there, but it must have gotten deleted
1: somehow. Right, <laughs> so that's why I asked you, so we, we know the time frame here, because listen to this. Now, it was Carolyn the mother who came up with the name for the dog. And her reasoning was, she said, well, you know what? She's an unusual dog, so we should give her an unusual name. And that's what they did. Bathsheba. <laughs>
2: That's going to wrap up part one of our series on the true story that inspired the first of The Conjuring films. We'll be back in two weeks with the next part. Please remember to support our sponsors. They help keep the show free and the lights
1: on in Blanket Fortiana. Special thanks to John Bolan.
3: Hi, I'm Kerry Neitz. Hi, I'm Bree.
0: I understand, I understand this is, is with permission to astonishing, astonishing legends, legends future, future compensation.
3: To use my voice. To use my voice. Perpetuity. Perpetuity.
2: Our show is edited by Sarah Voorhees-Wendell and co-produced by Tess Feifel, who is also our Head of Research. Our theme, which is available
1: as a ringtone, was composed by Judson Crane, and our sound design and additional composing is by Ryan McCullough. Special thanks to the Astonishing Research Corps. But most importantly, we want to thank you, our listeners. Visit our store at AstonishingLegends.com or interact
2: with us and other listeners on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can also support the show at patreon.com astonishinglegends, where patrons have access to additional bonus content. No part of this show may be reproduced anywhere without permission. Copyright Astonishing Legends Productions. Good night. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, presenting Pants with their 2006 track Antikin from their hit album, Twice the Snake You Need.
3: Yeah, we're